Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here once again with the man himself, Adam Chemaluski. Chema, how are we doing, my friend? Oh, thank you very much for that uh, terrific introduction, my friend. I am doing very, very well. Just uh, getting ready for another episode, which, uh, let's get started, dude. I'm ready. Yeah, let's get right into it. Let's, let's open up with a little bit of a lightning round here. Um, and uh, you'll you'll see why I'm asking this question as we go through this episode. Um, but Chema. Next time you are north of the border, and maybe you've had a few too many drinks in some kind of bar, in some rural bar uh, up in uh, up in northern Ontario, and you get into some fisticuffs, what, who, who do you want fighting alongside you? What Canadian do you want fighting alongside you? Can be a real or a fictional Canadian? Okay, dude. I'm glad you asked this because if I was in this situation, and for some reason I feel like I would be somebody who would get themselves into this situation... I want to break whoever's fighting me both mentally and physically. And so I'm going to go with this superhero named North star who was um, basically like in Canada's version of X-Men. He was introduced in the American X-Men comics in issue number 120, which came out back in the seventies and North star is like the Canadian answer to Quicksilver. Like he's really, really fast. And there's a lot of stuff to do with like uh, energy and atom manipulation that enhances his body. So he kind of becomes stronger as he gets faster and stuff. Okay. And a dude like this would outright break any son of a bitch that um, is, is going to encounter me in, you know, in the great Northern lights and stuff like that. So I could see this guy just totally laying a hurt on these people. And then the psychological breaking is going to come from the fact that he is actually one of the first ever gay superheroes that no have shit. ever come out in publication yeah he was it happened in believe it or not it happened in 1992 which um congratulations marvel on getting in early on on the ground floor mm-hmm. of that um but um yeah so he um i think he's not the first one but he is definitely one of the um earlier ones and the notion of these big uber male canadian dudes getting blomped by a gay superhero it's just going to break and it's going to break them both uh physically and the crisis of conscience that they are going to suffer after getting beat down by a gay man is just going to be epic so that's the guy i'm going with i like it i like it and for just so uh to use uh to use some parlance from letter kenny um undesirables are dgens dgens from upcountry oh okay okay interesting i've never heard that terminology before. degenerates degenerates Yes, yes. Oh, yes. So, degens from upcountry. So, up from wherever else, degenerates. Okay. Yeah, I've heard, I've used, I've used degens a couple times. The whole upcountry thing is kind of new and adds a whole little, nice little roll off the tongue after that little insult there. You know, it gives it a little something extra. North Star. I like it though. That's, that's, that's a really, I had, I had zero idea. Again, I'm not a comic book person. So, there's plenty that, there's plenty of comic book stuff that has passed me in my (laughs) lifetime. So, yeah, I, I totally forgot Wolverine was Canadian, and I'm like, yeah, like I'm That's not right. gonna do yeah. this. Like, I gotta work. I gotta. I gotta work a little bit harder than Wolverine on this. <laughs> so right. I went. So I went with another um, another X Men who just happened to be from Canada. Like it. I like it. All right. So I actually I went with a real person, and I actually had my first thought was someone else who I was convinced was Canadian, and turns out is an American. So I want. I'm going to talk about him after I talk about my actual selection here. But I'm going with Boston, Boston Bruins Hall of Famer Terry O'Reilly. Uh, he earned the nickname Bloody O'Reilly uh, during his uh, during his playing days. He's from uh, Niagara Falls, Canada. He he was the longtime enforcer, obviously for the Bruins. Um, just one of those guys. This is you know hockey back in the '60s and '70s and into the '80s. 
Um, it's it's basically you basically had one guy or two guys on a team that were just basically boxers on skates, and like their whole role was to like whoever the scorer was or whoever the best player was. So you know whoever uh, like Wayne Gretzky had. Um, oh gosh, I can't remember who he had for the Oilers. But, like, there was a guy there that basically was, like, going to scrap with anybody that got in, in Gretzky's yeah. face. And Terry O'Reilly was that guy for the Boston Bruins. Now, Terry O'Reilly He's... started maybe one of the most famous fights in the history of sports. Um, it, it was uh, the Bruins were playing the, uh, were playing the Rangers at, uh, at MSG at the, at the Garden. And there was, it was, like, a real chippy game, a chipperier-than-usual game. And by the end of the game, the, all the players were kind of, like, you know, post game, Bruins won. All the players are at one end of the rank, kind of getting in each other's faces. Nothing really major is happening. A little pushing each other, some probably some uh, very polite name calling amongst the Canadians. And um, hmm. then someone from the stands reached over with a with a uh, with like a rolled up program and slapped Terry O'Reilly in the face with it, and that was it. Terry O'Reilly then jumped into the stands, tackled two people, and just began beating them, just beating the shit out of them. And then all of the Boston Bruins, then the whole team, goes climbing into the stands of Madison Square Garden, fighting anyone that came near them. It was a fucking melee. All the Rangers were just on the ice watching, like, holy shit. Like, do we go, like, do we go up there? Like, what the hell do we do? But it's, you can find it on YouTube. It is unreal to watch. And Terry O'Reilly is the one leading the charge. He's just grabbing people at random and just knocking them out. Grabbing the next guy, knocking them out. Grabbing the next guy, knocking them out. It's fucking unreal. So it's like the malice in the palace before the malice in the palace, right. and turns out a lot more malice. It looks right. like much this more malice. Like way this more was... of a chaotic event. Exactly. This is way more. Cha- if this would have happened now, Terry O'Reilly would have been arrested. Like no doubt about it. That guy'd be in jail. Oh God, easily, dude. And you know, for a second, I thought you were talking about the guy that in Happy Gilmore was Happy Gilmore's favorite hockey player, but that but it was Danny O'Reilly, the Tasmanian Devil. Correct. Correct. Um, now the yeah. guy was the guy was originally going to talk about. Turns out he's an American, and I was so convinced that he's Canadian. I'm sure he's from. I think he's from. I think he's from like upstate Vermont, so he's practically Canadian. But um, uh, Chris Nyland, he's the most penalized American hockey player of all time. He has nine seasons of over a thousand penalty minutes. It's like the most ever for an American hockey player. He was such. He was such a scrapper and such a fighter and such an asshole that they the penalty box used to be like one big box basically that you know doesn't didn't matter what team you're on that's where you went to you know when he got penalized um chris mm-hmm. nyland used to start fights in the penalty box so the reason that it's separated now is because of him and they actually call oh, the wow. glass in between the two separate spots of the penalty box it's called the nyland glass is that what that's called yes. interesting no, no I, I never knew that. I, I, I can remember the players being together in the box. Like that, that yes, imagery comes right to my to mind. Other, but there's a big piece of plexiglass between them. Holy shit, dude. Like, I mean, in a way, it's like, why didn't they just start doing that from the beginning? Like, it seems like that Probably should have been done a Chris long Island time ago. Probably because Chris didn't exist yet to start fights with everyone on yeah. the fucking, on the, in the penalty box. Yeah, they're just like, oh, no one's ever going to think to start a fight with a guy in the penalty box. We'll be fine. And then this dude comes along and everything. It, it kind of sounds like the inspiration for Happy Gilmore, like the most time spent on the penalty box. And if this guy took off his, sta- his skate and tried to stab somebody, like that would just be the icing on the cake right there. Pretty, Yeah, pretty much. So there you go. We got North Star and Terry O'Reilly. Our, I think that's I think between the four of us, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good uh, team right there to take on some uh, D-Jones from upcountry. 
Oh, I think so too. I think like everybody else in the fight and me just sitting there making wisecracks, that's the way to go, man. Exactly. <laughs> or, or the two of us, the two of us having beers while they go work out their exactly. uh, issues, you know? Exactly. All right. So in case you couldn't tell, we're going to be talking about Canadians. Um, specifically, we're going to be talking about entertainment uh, in Canada and uh, the surprising amount of the surprising amount of ca- uh, Canadian entertainment that you intake, that all of us intake, um, a lot of times without realizing that it's Canadian. Um, and also, like, the the very, as I, as I put this in the outline, the very outsized impact that Canada actually has in the, in the entertainment industry. It is significant for a country that is, obviously it's a very big country, but for a country that's as small as it is, um, you know, 37 million people, uh, you know, according to their last census, um, they have a, a humongous impact in the entertainment industry. Yeah, definitely, dude. And I'm looking forward to getting into some of the stuff that you have to say about this. Like, and I was just, like I said before, like I was thinking about this. I was like, man, like, you know, I didn't off the top of my head, I couldn't really think of like, just, Hey, like if Adam named five Canadian whatevers. And I was like struggling to do that. And then the more and more that I look this up, I started to find that I'm a little bit more familiar with some Canadian entertainment that I had originally thought. Exactly. There's, there's quite a bit. And you know, and there's like shades to it. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's like the X Files was filmed in Canada mostly, but are we going to sit here and call the X Files a Canadian show? Probably not. Right, right. It's like James Cameron is uh, from Canada. Is Terminator Two a Canadian right. movie? I, I would exactly. not say so. Exactly. Um, but there is, you know, but there is room for that. Like we're going to have a. There's going to be room for that kind of discussion a little bit later on. Uh, but Chema, I want to I want to start you off with a little trivia. Not you don't have to answer anything. Just a little fact, I guess here. Um, so you're obviously familiar with, with SAG-AFTRA, the Actors Guild, essentially the Actors Union. Um, mm-hmm. there is a Canadian counterpart. It's called ACTRA, um, A-C-T-R-A. Um, SAG, okay. SAG has 160,000 members. ACTRA has 27,000 members. Now, here's why I point this out. It doesn't, that's, you, it seems like that's about right when you think about like the you know all the actors in the that are in the United States versus all the actors in Canada, but that's actually a really skewed ratio. Um, if you were to take that as like a per capita, and granted, this is trust me when I tell you like there's there's 160,000 SAG members, but it probably is less than that. There's tens of thousands of members who like are behind on dues that are going to get kicked out. Um, there's inactive members, so like this is let's just say this is very. I'm rounding up here to make this uh, equation make sense here. Okay. Um, okay, but either way, this is still a really staggered number. So of the so like I said before, thirty-seven million Canadians, twenty-seven thousand registered actors. That's one actor for every one thousand one hundred and thirty-seven people. Uh, or excuse me, that's one actor for every one hundred and thirty-seven people. Um, in the United okay. States, that same ratio. If you take the the SAG members, it's one actor for every two thousand sixty-two people. If you applied okay. that same ratio to the size of the United States, there'd be 2.4 million actors in the United States. It'd be the eighth most popular job in the U.S. <laughs> it would, well, that's very interesting. Now. Here's, here's what it would be. It would be more popular than restaurant cooks, store clerks, maintenance, maintenance workers, truck drivers, secretaries, and like home care aides. And the only jobs that would have more uh, workforce would be waiters, customer service reps, freight laborers, cashiers general food prep and retail that's it holy shit 
like that is actually that is very very interesting and yeah. like i know that there's some industry joke about la in there somewhere that i'm just struggling to make <laughs> a good one on right now but but no that is very very interesting and just the fact that um if you were to go like i mean this would obviously be something that would be you know, all over America, you would walk into like um, someplace in Topeka, Kansas and like, hey, we're all actors in Topeka. You know, it's just like a weird kind of thing to think about. Yeah, exactly. It's a very um, it's again, it's just a weird it's just a weird sort of, you know, take take it as you want to take it. But the fact that the fact that a country the size of Canada, which is once you get outside of the big cities, once you get outside of Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal, um, and I'm, I'm not going to consider like Edmonton, Calgary, Sudbury, even Ottawa, they're not really big cities. Those are like the size of Akron um, or Toledo, basically. Right. Um, once you get outside the big cities, it's just like, well, those actors clearly don't all live in those cities. So like, you have a pretty good chance of finding a registered actor in Canada just about anywhere. Like literally just about anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, you go to get your tire fixed at some place in the middle of the road. The, the guy fixes your tire, quotes Shakespeare for you perfectly. Like, I can <laughs> right. see this happening. Right. Whereas, whereas I bet if you were to find out where all the SAG members live, I bet you could split 99% of them between L.A. and New York. Yeah, I would. Yeah, that sounds about right. Maybe 99.5, something right. like that. I, I just I'm, I'm not seeing a lot of SAG registered actors other than Harrison Ford and Calista Flockhart living in Wyoming, you know. Right, right. Exactly. But then again, Harrison, Harrison Ford and Calista Flockhart probably make up about 25 percent of Wyoming's population. So. <laughs> it's pretty close. Probably most of its money. He and uh, he and Kanye. Yeah, Oh yeah, Kanye's moving up there. That's right. Yep. That's right. And I'm telling. Oh yeah, and I also keep like Jackson Hole is supposed to be the next uh, hot area where celebrities are going to move and stuff. Oh, like, basically, it, it, like whatever they. It already is. It already is. It's, it's um, J Hole is. It was real. It's been real big the last like 15 years uh, for the tech crowd to go to. Uh, we oh, I, I went to yeah. Jackson Hole as a kid, uh, like to go skiing, and the town is 1,000 percent different from what it was then. Okay. Yeah. I, I know the tech reference because of Silicon Valley and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, it, and like this, t- this town is going to get the, uh, the Sundance treatment or the Aspen treatment where all of a sudden, like just rich people are showing up. And next thing you know, Wyoming is a blue state, which, uh, Hey, if that's what it takes, everybody move the hell up there. We need a couple more blue states. <laughs> well, we need big ones. I don't, we don't really need Wyoming. Yeah. <laughs> Wyoming's, yeah, that's true. Wyoming's yeah. smaller than Cleveland, I think. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised at that, actually. I would not be surprised if that was turned out to be 100% true. <laughs> uh, anyway, but uh, back to back to our, uh, our counterparts from the Great White North. Um, as we said, we're going to be we're going to be talking Canada here, Canada, Canadian entertainment. Um, and we're going to try to like right now sort of pin down some of the traits that make a, a movie or show uniquely Canadian. And so so we're just going to send this we're just going to kind of volley this one back and forth and the question is what do you think of canadian entertainment what traits come to mind and i kind of want you to think more about the production and like the tone versus very specific stuff because we're going to get into some specifics here in a bit so chama kid start me off here like what are some of these traits that come to mind when you think about uh, a canadian production okay so in starting off with production they're much smaller scale like I was going through like the internet and different movies and shows and stuff. And like, there is absolutely no Canadian answer to like transformers for yeah. And I'm not saying that like, uh, you know, obviously like believe me, CGI is everywhere. I'm not saying can you know, Canadians don't use CGI or they don't have it up there, but you just don't see 
these massive scale productions. Like, I mean, we, we, we make them up there. Don't get me wrong. Like, you right. know, we'll make them up there. No problem. But I'm not seeing any movie posters for like, um, you know, the, the skyscraper, skyscraper in Toronto down, whatever the six down, whatever the hell they call that thing or mm-hmm. uh, siege at the blue Jays stadium. You know, they, there's not movies like that anywhere. So the production quality or the scale of productions are much smaller. They seem to, the stories like there could be action in them. There could be effects in them, but they seem to be more focused on the actual like story than some of the spectacle. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Um, you actually were making two really good points there. You had, you had one that I had, um, but yeah, the, the production scale, you're never going to see um, like take, uh, take Denny Villeneuve, who's Canadian um, who's mm-hmm. just, you know, finished, well, he finished Dune, like, probably a year and a half ago, um, it's, you know, still, still not gonna get it released until later this year, but, um, that, that was, what, a 200-plus million dollar production? There's... Oh, that was epic. Right. Epic. Um, Pinewood Studios in Toronto is not handing anyone 200 million dollars to make a movie. Right. <laughs> no, that's very true on they'd that, go, yeah. They'd probably like... go bankrupt even funding half of that. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a really good um, kind of like words that I can kind of pick up on there is like, you know, it's they have money up there. I mean, there's money, there's millions of dollars, there's, you know, there's probably billions of dollars in some of these studios. But it's not like how it is here where like, I don't know, man, it almost if they're making just about anything, like some of these studios will throw 40 million dollars in the stuff that never gets made. It almost seems like up there. And I have little evidence to support this other than just this Toronto screenwriting conference that I attended. But it just seems like things up there are a little bit more like it just seems like it's a little more difficult to get like stuff made. Like people have like Mm. a little bit greater conscious of what they're investing money into. You know, you're not seeing dance flick up in Canada. You're not seeing uh, meet the Spartans (laughs) in Canada. You know, So there just is there seems to be this like collective conscience among filmmakers and maybe it's just they really know their audience and being and we'll probably get into some of the stuff here in a little bit but uh, they're just really like conscientious about the direction that they go to with canadian you know canadian productions i i would argue that that it, that is sort of that sort of underlies everything is this sort of um this sort of canadian sensibility to not like waste things and like I mean, like you, you think about, do you think about like take Canada as a whole and like how rugged like the whole country is, and how you don't like you have parts in Canada that really aren't like that really aren't like necessarily like that far away. You're not that far away from being in Toronto in some cities, in some like you mm-hmm. know, some like counties, like rural townships and stuff. But like you are at the same time, so like you have to make the most of what you have. And I feel like that's like underpinning everything that Canadians that can that is Canadian entertainment. Make the most of what you have. Yeah, definitely, dude. You're a hundred percent right on that. This whole like, just it's hard for me to actually. I know that there's a certain like phrase for it or something. Just like making the most of what you have, I think is just the best way to put it. I thought there'd be some other kind of funnier other example that I can bring into that, but no, you put that right way. Making the most of what you have. And I'll, I'll and I'll start there. That um, I'll, I'll expand upon that. Like for for the first one, I'll, I'll mention here is that it's make the most of what you have, maximize on what's on hand. There are some Canadian TV shows that literally have one set or one location, or maybe two sets, an additional location to shoot mm-hmm. outdoors or something. But they make it work. Right. Like they they're like, all right, so how do we make this one fucking set? 
how do we make this a spaceship, a bar, a hotel, and you know, like, and then we need like one location outside to make it look like we've gone someplace. And right. sometimes you you kind of have to do like a little squinting when the spaceship suddenly becomes a bar or something. You know what I mean? Like you, if you're like looking around close enough, you can kind of see exactly you know like that it's like the same set just like with some little adjustments here and there um but like mm-hmm. is it once you're paying attention to the story it just blends in the background you don't even notice it yeah yeah and like they have to do that because there's not an overabundance of like studio space out there i mean you could drive like in this town like it's when you drive like through just anywhere in la you'll walk, drive by a building and it's something studios and it's not Warner brothers. It's not, you know, it's not Raleigh studios. It's not uh, paramount or CBS or anything. It's just a random studio space. So I guarantee that there's not a lot of available, like they don't have like a, they're not, it's not like there's a surplus of it. You know, it's probably like if, a, if somebody wants to shoot, it takes three weeks to shoot after those three weeks, the next crew's coming in to start mm-hmm. building sets for whatever's going to shoot next. You know, this kind of like, um, almost like more organized kind of approach to it because they don't have as much. Exactly. I mean, just for example, like Schitt's Creek on Schitt's Creek, the Rose Apothecary is like five different stores. Like that set is used for like everything. Um, it's, Oh, they just dress it up differently. Yeah. I could, I could definitely see that. And like Schitt's Creek is making the most of what you have. And then some, which I, I don't want to get into too much on that show. Cause we're going to be, I, I know we're going to be peppering it in throughout the course sure, of the conversation, sure. but as far as making the most of what you have and not having a whole lot to deal with, Schitt's Creek definitely knows how to maximize pretty much everything out mm-hmm. of its situation. And I'm, I'm yeah, going to dive into another one here, Chum, real quick since you brought it up. But like something that I really noticed, and this is this is evident whether it's a movie or a TV show, that those stories are, are very, I would say they're character driven. That mm-hmm. we're much more concerned about the journey that the character is going to take versus how we get them there you know there's you can kind of fudge the story and the plot a little bit as long as it's like an interesting character story um and i I think that is just present in every be it comedy drama action whatever they're at their at their core they're character driven stories character driven movies or tv shows versus something that is you know we're not we're not unwinding some grand conspiracy um you know the story is is definitely taking the backseat to like in a show like letter kennedy who cares about like what, what, how we're putting these characters together in a room? We have them together in a room. Let's let them do their thing. Oh yeah, dude. Like when you check a look, when you take out, check out some of these like Canadian movie posters, they all look like film festival darlings. You know, mm-hmm. you even see like little clips of some of this stuff. It just looks like something that is homegrown for film festivals. You know, just like a lot of character focus. Um, definitely stuff that doesn't like, you know, rule on the spectacle or are reliant on the spectacle and everything. Just it's, it's almost like, almost like a theater type experience, but translated onto the screen somehow, as far as like capturing like character focus. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I mean, just to, I don't want to beat this particular, uh, this particular horse too much, but just like think of like Denny Villeneuve's movies, even like a spectacle like Blade Runner or Rival, those are still character stories versus you know versus your typical hollywood blockbuster oh yeah like if you if that movie wasn't blade runner like having the blade runner attachment to it i'm pretty positive that you could with minimal reworking of that story turn it into anything you Mm -hmm. know i mean it could be a minimal even with the minimalist on the special effects i mean it could just be about 
a guy hunting robots, you know, without any of the big flashy CGI right. and stuff like that. And even like um, some of his like less um, some of his like not as recent stuff, you know, when you go back to enemy and prisoners and we'll get to mm-hmm. some of these in a little bit, but prisoners is like, that's all character right yes. there. I mean, that whole movie is just Hugh Jackman bringing the fucking wood every goddamn scene. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And that's like when you watch prisoners and for the longest time, like I, I had just saw it actually like within the last like couple of years. And for the longest time I had this really crazy like expectation. I thought it was going to be like, I, I don't know. I thought it was just going to be like maybe dark and mystical or, but no, I mean, it was just basically like, um, a missing girl story, Hugh Jackman being the man, Paul Dano being awesome and Jake Gyllenhaal, like once again, kicking ass on the, on the screen. Mm-hmm. So there is just something about this particular style of storytelling that, um, is very, it's very unique to, um, to our neighbors up North. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I would uh, throw out anything else that you, that you noticed too. Okay. So particularly with tone and I found this article, um, it's called, what makes a film Canadian? It's on the artsguild.com. This okay. was just like an article that I read to kind of get going on this whole uh, uh, outline and everything. And this author named Talia C, she doesn't provide her last name. There's this little like kind of paragraph here that I'll kind of get to the good stuff here. So um, finally, there's a matter of Canadian tone and feeling. There is something ineffable about a Canadian film with a low budget and a big heart. But these works can only can be spotted a mile away. Take, for example, the little film, The Old Stock 2012, that I had the pleasure of viewing a couple of years ago. And she goes on to say that this film was written and directed by uh, Canadians, cast and crew the whole way. It was also filmed in this town of Orangeville, Ontario. And um, to get to my main point, it's like it also has this sweet, charming nature of this quiet, unassuming film that lends it a Canadian feel. There is no over-the-top Hollywood spectacle present, just a quirky attitude and tongue-in-cheek humor. Difficult to describe, yet easy to recognize. A Canadian tone is, in my opinion, the most important aspect to consider when deciding whether or not a film is truly Canadian. And that's kind of how she closes Mm -hmm. off this article, is the idea of the Canadian tone. And she puts it it very, very true. I mean, that's 100% on point. And if if I was to try to maybe draw some kind of like American parallels is that there isn't like when you see Canadian stuff, it's not like Tarantino dialogue, you know, and you might even say Tarantino dialogue is just Nicholas Pelleggi and Martin Scorsese dialogue tuned up a bit. Mm -hmm. They don't have, they're not reliant on this, um, like these long drawn out monologues that have this variance of tonal speed and rhythms. It's not all of a sudden talking really fast and then there's a stop and then this and all this. That's not how like these lines are delivered. It's almost like they're just, and I'm not saying that like they have monologues and stuff, but like for the most part, it is just very quirky, kind of very, very specific, maybe some slang, maybe the occasional abuse or something like that. It's just these like little kind of, you know, maybe like one every 15 words that you kind of pick up on and maybe one out of every 15 sentences or something that you just notice as something that is not, it's not American, it's not British. And, and then when you think about it, it's just, yeah, like this is Canadian all the way. It's just a very kind of specific Canadian tone. Yeah. I I called it, I I called it like this sort of lo-fi feel to everything. Mm -hmm. Even if it's a, even if it's like a bigger budget movie or TV show, there's still a lo-fi feel to it that makes it that makes it almost sort of it, it, almost like you're watching something that your friends made, 
even if it was made really, really well, like a Shit's Creek. It feels like something <laughs> right. that my friends put together. It feels like they're sort of... Um, it feels like at the, at the heart of every Canadian movie or TV show that there's like this enjoyment of almost like they're sort of like showing off for everyone. Like this is how cool regular Canadians are. Like we're just interesting people and we're going to show you how interesting we are. And we're just going to make sure that it's accessible to everyone else that wants to watch it. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's like there are, they're doing their best to kind of like make sure that they stand out from from us in, in, in any way that they can, mm-hmm. you know, like in, it, it may not be something big and it's probably not going to be something big. It is just probably going to be these little subtleties that really make Canadian work stand out from stuff here in America. And the lo-fi element of it, that is actually, that's a really, really good way to explain it because there is just something about the way these lines are written. Like, yeah, it's like, Hey, it almost feels like, yeah, I could have wrote that or mm-hmm. something. But at the same time, I couldn't have wrote that because I don't really have that, those warm sensibilities or that, <laughs> that, you know, that, um, that like that cadence or that knowledge of some of these, you know, like degen on the towns of Hill or whatever. I don't have like those kinds of expressions, you know, like any expressions that I would use are either uniquely American or uniquely Adam Chmielewski to a point where no one understands them. So it's, it's something that you kind of have to, be from there or spent a lot of time there, you have to have a really understand a real good understanding of the culture in order to truly capture its essence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I love that point. Um, there's just, yeah, there, there's boy. It's almost like you can scrape the Canadian off the film. Like it's just, it's stuck on there. Um, you, you can almost like see it, taste it, feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and this is something that, that it's so funny that like Hollywood's having this reckoning the last few years about diversity. I think that's like one of Canada's strengths with their entertainment industry is how diverse it is. It's, it's men and women. It's first nations, people, it's black people, it's Indian people, it's Asian, like whatever. There are a lot of people from, that aren't, you know, straight white men contribute to the entertainment fabric of Canada. A lot of people. Um, some of, some of their best movies are, you know, are completely filmed, written and starring indigenous people. Or, you know, some of their best movies are totally about the experience of, of you know, like the like the, the Pakistani community in Western Canada. Like, they don't struggle with diversity the way that Hollywood struggles with diversity. Yeah, you know, it seems to come so naturally for, for, for them. And, like, I got to tell you, like, I've been to Toronto twice. And Toronto is such a worldly city where, mm. like, all the diversity... It just looks like it's been there for 200 years. You know what I'm saying? Like it just there's something about it where it just feels like so natural. And even the guy who is the um, the you know the, the the front runner fan for the Toronto Raptors, the guy that is like their big dog, uh, is, is from uh, the Middle East uh, and stuff. Nav Nav Batia. He's um, he's I think okay. he's I think he's Pakistani, but I, I don't don't quote yeah, me on that. But he's like he's like yeah, a big I, time. He's like owned car dealerships and all kinds of stuff. He's like a really, he's like a really good dude too. Like he's, he gives away, he gives away money to like all of his money to everybody. He's like a really good dude, I guess. Yeah. Of course. Dude, Cause he's Canadian. You just, yeah. You, you look at that guy. He just screams good dude. You know, like, can you imagine like the, can you imagine just like in this country, if like an NFL team, their big signature fan was somebody from the middle East, it would be all over Fox. It, this would be something that, the right wing would use this would be like almost mm-hmm. like a major news story in certain conservative uh, 
in certain conservative circles. But with but with him, it, it just looks like it's it looks so natural. You know, it, it looks like this guy is just a legit dude. Like, and that's like that is just something that speaks so well about the diversity of Canada. There's no tokenism. There's no like, hey, we're just going to cast this person because we need to have a black guy, which they definitely do that shit in Hollywood, and mm-hmm. um, it's been going on forever. With them, it just I don't know. They're just more like, I guess they're just like more open to it because areas like Toronto are the, the diversity is just like such a part of that city. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. He's, uh, he's actually from India. Um, but India. Uh, okay. yeah, like it's, you're right. I, I like the way you put that. There's like no, there's no tokenism. I shouldn't say that there's no tokenism, but like you, you like, you know, like uh, what, what are the Canadian entertainment Juno awards? Those are the Canadian Entertainment Awards? The Juno, Juno Awards? Yes, they are. Yes. You've never heard of the Juno Awards having to restructure to make sure that enough Indian <laughs> right. or Pakistani people had to get it. You know what I mean? Like, that would never happen yeah. to them because they're going to be nominated. Yeah, you're right. Like, you're right. I'm sure that there is tokenism, but it's, it's almost like if there is tokenism going on in Canada, they're not obvious about it the way that it is in American productions and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like when you're looking at an all white cast and all of a sudden there's just like the one funny African-American guy. Like, yeah, I think they're trying to like, you know, they're definitely saying something. But up there, like it's just if that is going on, it's going to be very difficult for me to notice it because of the diversity. Mm-hmm. And and like for to be sure, they've had problems with that. Like uh, there was like an issue and a, an issue that was raised like the first couple seasons of Letterkenny that there wasn't enough. Um, there wasn't enough black representation on the show. And the one woman, the one black woman on the show was like a fucking cartoon character, which it it's sort of it, like it sort of worked. It was almost like this mm-hmm. character was on a different show, and then like when she showed up, like things took a weird turn, which was always kind of delightful. But like for sure, she was playing a cartoon character, like very. It it just like, it didn't fit, and because she was the only black person, it was kind of like, hey, maybe you should get some black people that aren't fucking bizarre, like that are just gotcha. like normal people on the show, and they did to their credit, so. Okay. Well, it's good that they responded and like and addressed, you know, some of those concerns because it's it's just important to be more inclusive of people. Like it's like as America be, and I mean, believe me, America has always been diverse, but as I guess like as it becomes more and more diverse and everything like that. I mean, it just it, this is what our culture looks like now. It's not like I mean, it, I mean, I doubt it ever has, but it's just like it's not white people. It's like it's everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anything else here in terms of like just some traits or anything else that uh, stand out to you? Okay, so in um, nothing in this category, you just, pop the, down um, here? just just the whole like sci-fi horror. Okay, let's, yeah, let's, that, let's let's get into some specifics here because there's some interesting stuff that um, just some interesting stuff that uh, and I just just for like clarity's sake i just put the four sort of major genres of entertainment of movies and tv shows so, sci-fi and horror stuck them together if they're you know they're they're cousins dramas action mm-hmm. movies comedies those are your your four general things um i couldn't i guess you could include musicals but i'm not sure i've ever seen a canadian musical so i have no opinion um but uh <laughs> but when it comes to some of these like some of these like specific canadian traits that pop up in these various in these various genres, uh, let's just go right down the list, Chum. What what do you think about like when you think about uh, sci-fi and a horror? Like what really like what really like pops out as being Canadian to you? Okay, well, I was looking up this term called the Garrison mentality. It's like something that I found when I was just looking up Canadian film, and I guess like 
the wilderness and horror and stuff like that, like this unknown what's out there kind of thing. Like that's something that kind of comes into my mind when I think mm. of like just Canadian societal fears that would then in turn kind of drive some of the horror movies that they make and stuff. And I gotta be, I'll be entirely honest with you. Like with the exception of like my bloody Valentine and into the void, which I just watched um, about 90, 80% of last night. I got about 20 more minutes left mm-hmm. in it. I've watched it really, really late, but um, like, I'm not, I guess I just can't name a specific example to cite this, like, okay. you know, fear of the wilderness and everything. But, like, knowing that this is a, there's two societal fears. The second one I'm going to go into with my, when we get into drama. But they say that this garrison mentality is a combination of two societal fears, which is this, you know, um, fear of the emptiness of the big Canadian wilderness. Mm-hmm. And also this kind of, like, oppression of the outside world and kind of isolationism, which I'll talk about with the drama thing. But for... Um, I guess, and I, I, this is just my own ignorance here. Um, I cannot give you a specific movie example of, a, uh, basically, like you know, this fear of yeah. the wilderness that was made in Canada. I got you. No, I got you. I, or, just, I, I. Sorry, go ahead. Continue. Oh no, that was it. Like okay. I'm pretty positive that there had there have been some. There's been an overabundance of like American movies and stuff made up there, you know. But I just could not give you a. French director production in Canada that would exemplify this particular societal fear. Right, I got you. I, I, it's yeah. That that's a really good one. I didn't actually know that it had a name, but I know, like, I knew as soon as you started talking about it, I was like, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. You're in a gigantic country, wherein you might be, you might, you know, the next town might be 15 miles. Um, so it actually kind of goes to um, that sort of. Um, that sort of like isolation and like the fear of the wilderness for sure, or the fear of the empty space in the wilderness. But like the fact that you are, you can be very isolated really does fit into mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of Canadian horror movies. And it fits into a lot of what someone who's going to be mentioned probably a lot here. It fits into a lot of early David Cronenberg stuff. Um, yeah. Have, have you ever seen the brood? I have. I have not. I think Jess has told me about this movie Oof, though, but movie I, is, I know of it, but I haven't seen it. That movie is that movie's fucked. Um, that, I mean, everything David Cronenberg so, pretty much does is fucked. But that is like one of the. Under, I mean, it, it takes place in. I don't actually. I can't remember if it specifically takes place in Canada, but it clearly takes place in Canada. And mm-hmm. this like bizarre little murderous family can exist because there's no one around or near them to bother them. There's, it's kind of like, okay. oh, not in the same, not in the same way, but think of the same spirit of like something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that this family okay. lives so far apart from everything else. There's no normal society to rein them in. I gotcha. Okay, very interesting. Okay, so yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, that definitely sounds like a movie David Cronenberg would make. Totally. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll have to check that out. That does sound pretty good. Yeah, it's it's the brood is early. I mean, I like mostly all of David Cronenberg stuff, but like the stuff seventies and eighties David Cronenberg is just fucking it's, it's incredible. Um, and just and just sort of like a little little dash of trivia here: the Canadians are the progenitors of body horror. I mean, it's David Cronenberg, but the Canadians mm-hmm. made up the Canadians created body horror. Very fucking cool. Very fucking cool. I love hearing shit like that. Way to go, Canada. <laughs> Not really sure. I guess it's because they're, I don't know, they're bored a lot of times. They, uh, You know, a lot of them are like farmers and stuff, so they, I'm sure they cut up our bodies all the time, you know, animal bodies. <laughs> so it just naturally kind what of if, like seeps into their, into their cinema. 
what if it's one of those deals where like, you know, life is so great up there. They really don't have any fears. And the only thing they're feared of is just shit growing out of their body. Right. could be, it could be, but the, but David Cronenberg and the Canadians, they, they made body horror and just sort of, you know, it's funny. Like when we did our, our, um, our John Carpenter episodes, uh, we were talking about Halloween for sure. Halloween sort of reinvigorated the slasher genre, but maybe one of the most famous slashers came five years before it. Black Christmas. What was it? Black Christmas. Okay. That is the, uh, on every top 10 Canadian horror movie yep. list I saw when I was doing research for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You know, you know what else that guy directed? What's that? He has, he has two great Christmas movies. He has Black Christmas and he has Christmas Story. Oh, get out of Dodge. Yeah, swear to no God. No fucking shit. Wow. Dude. Wow. No, I had I had absolutely no idea. And I actually I drove past the Christmas story house like um mm-hmm. when I was going to my buddy's place. That is like a whole goddamn campus over there in Tree. It is. It's it's like three different three different houses. I'd never I'd never been, but um I've been by it and I was I was just very impressed. It was just like um a whole thing now. I was like, wow, there's like multiple buildings and mm-hmm. you got the rally right there. I was like, wow, so it's the same guy. Holy shit. We yeah. want to talk about uh you want to talk about range in your career? That's for sure. I know, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> Directing one. It's like, Dude, man, I didn't know that TBS was going to be showing my movie twenty four hours a day on Christmas. <laughs> seriously. Um, so, how about that? Let's let's drop down. Then uh, you mentioned uh, you had something for drama here. Um, go ahead and uh, throw out what you're going okay. to put down here. So I was going to go with this whole like the the other half of the garrison mentality, this like oppressiveness from the outside world, mm-hmm. and also kind of with the isolation angle as well. And the, um, we're talking about David Cronenberg and the, the movie. I actually saw this uh, in the last year. I really dug on that movie Cosmopolis with mm. Robert Pattinson. And this movie, it was shot in, um, in Toronto and, uh, the girl from Schitt's Creek, who is not the Rose sister, not Annie Murphy, but, um, Emily Hampshire. Stevie on the show. Emily Hampshire. Yes. Yeah. Emily Hampshire. Yeah. She's, she makes an appearance in Cosmopolis and, the whole, like, just number one, this guy being isolated in this limousine, but there's also this, like, very, like, anti-capitalist, like, kind of statement that the movie's trying to make because there's this, like, protest about capitalism and Robert Pattinson's business is, like, just going out from under him while he's inside the limo. So um, in terms of the second half of the garrison mentality, Cosmopolis was the movie that I chose to apply that for the drama category of this outline. Yeah, no, that's that's you know I still haven't seen Cosmopolis, and but it just seems, boy, I mean obviously it just screams Cronenberg, um, but he's he's I mean he's the definition of an auteur, um, but yeah, it's just it it is very interesting how think like literally think about I don't know if you're familiar with like Videodrome or The Fly or how familiar you are with The Fly, it's mm-hmm. people going through stuff that it's people going through things by themselves. Like, yeah. you know, James Wood's character, I can't remember his name, uh, Max Rex or something like that, or Max Wren um, in Videodrome. He's going through this, whatever, this signal and this isolation. It's by himself. The, um, Jeff mm-hmm. Goldblum has to experience the fly, essentially becoming the fly by himself. And yeah. that really is, like, very prominent, um, you know, prominent in horror movies and obviously prominent in, in uh, dramas as well. Yeah, dude, I'm telling you, Cosmopolis, it's it's one of these movies that, 
like with Robert Pattinson being Batman and stuff, I kind of had to dive into a couple Pattinson films, like just to, I just needed to see something else other than the lighthouse, which he was amazing in. And dude, I got to tell you, like, this is one of these movies that it's very different. It takes a lot of fucking chances. And I personally think that they all pay off. And the end, the ending is basically like, um, I'm not going to tell you the, the specifics of the ending, but the, the whole like third act is just basically him talking to Paul Giamatti and like what happens in their conversation and stuff that I thought it was some really bold, risky choices that paid off in this very, very unique and quirky kind of way. Yeah, that's, I, I, yeah, I have to, I have to get around to checking that out. And it's like, since I've been doing like research for this show, there's like a lot of stuff that I'm like, man, I should, should probably watch this. Like, it sounds like it sounds pretty good. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so there you go. I, I like that example. Um, I don't have a specific movie here, uh, but, but I, you'll, you'll like totally get, I mean, like, I think the, the like the core, like if you were to pull out like the core Canadian drama and you were to send like a, a Canadian drama into space to, as an example for the aliens, like this is like an example of Canadian culture, I would almost guarantee you that it's going to be about a big family. These movies okay. and TV shows are almost always about a family, especially the dramas. It's about, you know, a lot of times they cover generations of, of fa- you know, in, in the same family. And I think that is just, again, it, it's a result of, it's a result of like, you know, like if you're like a rural Canadian, you probably like, you know, born, lived and died like on the same like area of land that like your dad did and his dad did. And I think that sort of, and for, you know, that goes for like for people from like First Nations. They're, they probably born, lived, and died in the same reservation that their, you know, their ancestors lived and died on. So I think just by, simply by, you know, by the way that they live, um, that that is informing the way, like, the dramas are. That the dramas are going to be very family-focused and very centered on, like, the family unit, whatever that family unit looks like. Oh, yeah, dude. And, like, just to give you an example of a comedy, there's a show out called Kim's Convenience, which is about a family yep. that runs a convenience yep. store and everything. And, like... Yes, it is. It is rooted inside the family all the way. And like maybe it is just one of these deals where like it's this um, culture wise. Maybe they're more of like a collectivist culture as here in America. It's like everybody for themselves. Like, mm-hmm. screw you, my brother. You know, like, oh, for sure uh, they are. I would uh, for sure they are. I would say, yes, that's you're hitting that right in the head. Yeah. And like even so like so stuff like, you know, like Kim's Convenience, very rooted in the family, even like um, Shazam, which was filmed in Toronto by a, a Swedish director, but still like filmed up in Toronto. There is this big family element of Shazam mm-hmm. as well. So like it's it's got it just has to be something that is uh, like they're trying to get the most out of the elements of their culture in their entertainment. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I I'd, like we said before that, like there's sort of this um, they have this sort of like real pride in showing off their culture and if family's at the center of it you're going to show off family units and like everything that you do right exactly exactly yeah and it's probably something that like is so it's such an accepted thing over there and something that's just so ingrained in them it's it almost feels like it never gets old it could always be a different mm-hmm. family you mm-hmm. know uh do you have anything else here for dramas nothing else for dramas no let's let's move on to action this one is a little bit harder i think to fill out um, because kind of like you said, there's really not, there isn't a Canadian equivalent of like Transformers anywhere. Um, cr- granted, there's not like a British, Australian, or any other equivalent to Transformers anywhere. Um, but this one was a little bit more difficult to sort of give the specific trait, but I did find a couple of things here. I- I'm curious to see what you kind of, what you kind of dug up here. 
Okay, dude, I will tell you outright, I don't think I've ever seen a Canadian action movie. And other than some of the other stuff that we were talking about, it's just like smaller scale productions. That's that's all I was able to like really get out of this particular one. I, I there it wasn't as um there wasn't as much on it as some of like the horror movie and some of the right. other categories. Right. So I, here I'll, I'll 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 fill in the two things that I noticed. And actually, there's a movie that I really want to see because it looks funny. Um, but it's sort of like if we're gonna do like an action show. It's it's guns it's guns over explosions and special effects you know or I should say I should say visual effects computer effects obviously there's CGI and fucking everything but that's not going to be the bread and butter you're going to get a lot of like a lot of like the a lot of the TV that gets imported over here it's it's procedurals it's cop shows um, because okay. you can make a cop show you know you can have action sequences that don't re- that don't rely on cars being blown up buildings collapsing uh aliens attacking you can just have shootouts so there's a lot right. of a lot of canadian tv shows and, and movies that are action oriented are just guns a lot of guns um because it just it, it mm-hmm. makes sense it's just it's easier to do it's cheaper to do and here's something that i, I found interesting i canada seems to only make action comedies um, there, are, I mean, there are really? serious ones. I mean, there there are serious ones. But if you go through like a list of like what these movies are, they're like there are a lot of action comedies for what they you know for for them being in the action genre. There's a lot of comedies. Oh, that's very very interesting. No shit. Like it's like Iron Iron Eagle seemed to be the one that popped up all the time. Is this does it fall into that genre? Uh, no, Iron Eagle's a American. Well, I mean, it's Canadian, but it's like about American pilots. Um, oh, fighter pilots. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha. Um, yeah, no, there's, there's when one. When I typed in that, that was like the thing that came up all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, because they're they're all filmed in Canada. I think the director's Canadian too. Um, but uh, yeah, no, there's there's one there's one that actually looks pretty. Like the trailer makes it look pretty funny. Um, it's called uh, and it's and it's it's sort of like it's called uh, Bond Cop, Bond Cop, uh, Good Cop, uh, or sorry, Bond okay. Cop, Bad Cop. And it's so it's good cop bad cop, but Bond obviously French. Um, and it's about the ever uh, the uh, their sort of like cultural divide, the you know the French speaking versus the English speaking, and it's about uh, the English speaking a, a Toronto uh, or I think it's Toronto, but regardless, an Ontario detective having to work with a with a uh, Quebec detective, and like their sort of culture clash. But it actually looks really funny, and it's with someone who I would never think of being funny, uh, Comme Fior. Who is that? He's the father in currently in the Umbrella Academy. Oh no, shit! Really? Yeah. Okay, wow. I would never always expect plays, that guy to have comedic chops. Always plays scary dudes. Um, I I remember him from my youth. I'll always remember him from my youth as being um, Andre Linoge from the Storm of the Century movie that that Steven Spielberg, one of the Steven Spielberg adaptations okay. that ABC did, and he played this fucking like mm-hmm. awful. I, I don't know if he's supposed to be Satan or like a demon or something, but like he played this awful character in that. And I'll always okay. remember him as being this like scary, scary dude. And he's always plays kind of villainous characters. Well, well that's very interesting to know that he has comedic chops. Cause that's like the last thing I could possibly exactly. see out of that guy, especially just from the umbrella Academy. The guy was like, a, it looks it's that major dick kind of vibe. Exactly. Comedic exactly. chops. That's very interesting. Yeah, and that movie is another one that came up. Um, it's on a bunch of different lists, like must see Canadian films and stuff like that. Mm. Like that, that's another like um, kind of you know one that I saw a bunch of times pop up for sure. So, uh, how about comedies then? This this should have plenty of meat in the bone. 
Oh yes, it does. That definitely does. And like the, the trait that I have, it's organic. That's the best way mm-hmm. that I can put it. Like, so going, this is where I'll play the uh, Shit's Creek card. So sure. Shit's Creek, this is a show that like, I'm not going to lie. I don't think like I would have normally got into this show. And I, I will say like large, a lot of my interest is kind of sparked initially by everybody talking about how great this show was. And like, I wasn't sold like right away in the beginning, but as it got on, it just seemed to get better and better mm-hmm. and better in its own Canadian Shit's Creek sort of way. And the thing that about this is like, they pump everything like organically out of this. I mean, there's, they have like what I'm about to tell you, but it's not something that happens all the time where it's not like all of a sudden, you know, Moira's brother shows up. And then all of a sudden there's three episodes where like Moira's brother is a drunk party animal and he's doing a bunch of crazy shit and he gets in trouble. It's not like that at all. It's just this family in this town with, you know, a couple of characters in the town, like, you know, like Mm -hmm. some five or six, like, you know, reoccurring prominent characters in the town. Mm -hmm. And it's just their personalities. It's just them clashing. It's just situational conflict. It's conflict within the characters. There's, it's like the exact opposite of like an American sitcom. Like there's no, mm-hmm. there's just, they don't rely on the same kind of sticks that we do here, you know, like, so Shit's Creek made it like what, like five or six seasons, six something seasons. like that. Yeah. And like, I'm telling you, I don't even think that the show had a, um, you know, like the sweeps week equivalent of like having a bunch of celebrity cameos on there. It wasn't like this overstocked like episode where, Hey, all of a sudden, uh, you know, like Win Butler from the Arcade Fires in an episode, followed by the Bare Naked Ladies and all these other. Mm-hmm. They didn't. They, they didn't go for those kind of like, not cheap, but they didn't go for those kind of gimmicks. Everything is just. It's this this group, this family. They used to have money. Now they don't. Now they're in this town. Let it run wild for five um, for five or six seasons. And even some of the things that, um, like, you know, with um, with Daniel, like, Levy's character and the way that the show addresses, like, homosexuality, it's just, like, there's no, like, flashy big moments. It's mm-hmm. just, like, you know, it's just there and it's just normal and it's like you're rooting for David and Patrick to get married mm-hmm. and stuff at the end. And it's kind of upsetting and kind of beautiful when they do. So it's – I don't know. It's just this way of them presenting – these situations and these conflicts and this drama and this humor that it's all just organic. It's all just right there. You know, yep. like I don't, I personally don't even think that I could do that because if I'm just so like, if I was writing a show that long, I would be just like, okay, does Jim Carrey want to come by for an episode? Like, yes, exactly. dude, give me something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I need a really funny plumber to come in because the toilet broke and no one can fix it. You know, like that's, that's just something that is so inherent in us, but up there it's, it's just not. And it's a, very, very interesting. Like, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like Shit's Creek, actually. Something that I, re- like, that I got as wrapped up in as I did. Yeah, I, I, I they, th- what they, what, uh, what Daniel and, and Eugene Levy do with this show, I mean, mostly Daniel Levy, obviously, but what they do with the show is that, like, they, they find the real situation that's going to be happening in this town and then make comedy from that instead of, like you said, like if this was an American show that was like, you know, that was humming along, that was this successful, they would all of a sudden like, I, I don't know, pick a celebrity like, oh, Ariana Grande's in this week. Um, she got stuck. Her right. car got stuck in town. Like that doesn't make any sense for for a town. Yeah. Like, I mean, sure, you could have something. And there were episodes like that where people kind of like came into town for whatever reason. Um, but like it, it wasn't a distracting 
it wasn't a distracting cameo. It was just, here's another Canadian actor playing a role, but it's like important that they're, they're even farther outside the town now than the, than the Rose family is as the Rose family right. slowly gets absorbed by the town. Um, it, it's, but that's like sort of, again, they're just playing off the comedy of the situation, not trying to force a situation. Right, dude. And like the, the thing about like, the, okay, so in Schitt's Creek, you know how they open up the store. There's the Rose Apothecary. Mm-hmm. If this was, if this was an American show, like the day that they get the Rose Apothecary open, it would be the season finale. And at the end of the show, all of a sudden the store across the street would have gotten bought out by somebody that we meet in the premiere of season two. And now like, this store across the street and Rose Apothecary are going to have a rivalry for a season. And there's pranks and all this other dumb shit that they do back and forth with one another. And then in the end, the store across the street closes and they go somewhere else. That's exactly like what would have happened. Yep. I and mean, she's none of, none of that crap in shit's Creek. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's just all about them getting around in the town. And I, I'm telling you, that is just how you pump stuff organically. And we, you know, we talk about stuff getting pumped organically often on the show, but if, to get six seasons out of it, dude, it's just impressive. Mm-hmm. Six six seasons and is it fifteen episodes per season? Yeah, dude, it was. Yeah, That's it a wasn't lot. like any of this. It wasn't like any of this eight and done shit. I mean, we're almost to like you know mid two thousands, like a level of episodes in the season. Right. And stuff. I mean, it's it's a lot. It's a it's a it's a lot of that's a lot of TV to keep going. And you're right. Like I would say, like if you if anyone out there who hasn't seen it yet. Um, if you get you have to get past like the first five episodes i'd say and then the ball really starts rolling downhill and picking up steam like after they yeah, said everything. I, I think i think you start to figure it out like around like season five and stuff or sorry episode five of the first season like yeah. it, it just especially if you're not too familiar with um canadian television like some of the punchlines and everything like you may pick up on the fact that it's a punchline but it might take you a while to kind of like maybe get to know the character to the point where that punchline is funny. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, yes. and, and if people, if you, and if you love it from episode one, the more power to you, I'm just saying for me personally, like it, it takes a while for, and I guess like this is an, an example of any show, but um, it just takes a while. It takes a little bit for me to, you know, kind of get warmed up and kind of figure it out. And once I did, I loved it. So, right. Exactly. And oh, yeah. The, the other thing I wanted to quickly mention about yeah, the organic thing is that, um, okay. So with these characters, these characters like yes they did grow yes they did evolve but the writing didn't rely on just like stupid all of a sudden's to make these characters more interesting so like take on the office for example when you meet dwight in the first season dwight's obviously the kiss ass like you know uh, assistant to the regional manager you could tell he's a little intense but as the show went on there's like Oh, all of a sudden, he's now a voluntary um, Lackawanna, Lackawanna County Sheriff. Member. Right. So yeah. maybe maybe in the future, we can get two or three episodes out of Dwight doing this. And granted, we always knew about the beet farm, but the beet farm got a little more extreme as things got over time. So like, hey, by the way, now um, Shrewd Farms is doing weddings. Now he's making vodka from his beets. Now he's doing all this other stuff. And they even had so many of these other things that it actually culminated into a backdoor pilot for a show that never went through the went on the air and um or no it it didn't i don't think it did i think they i tried can't imagine it did i have no idea yeah. so yeah they, they were trying like with thomas middletich and they, they did a backdoor pilot in the end of the office for like trying to make a show called shrewd farms that mm. never like am- amounted into anything. no thanks yeah no, no i'm good on that but but like but that, but that's what i'm saying is that like in Shit's creek you never had these 
you had this stuff that was always true to the characters from like moment number one. And it wasn't like in the office where it's like, what could we give Dwight that would be something Dwight would do? You know, the characters in Schitt's Creek, they never had to worry about that. I and mean, it's just all right there from the start. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of the, um, the beauty, the beauty of simplicity. If, if the, the simpler you keep yeah. your concepts, the easier it is to write jokes and, and pull the comedy from that. Right. We didn't all of a sudden find out Mr. Rose was a Navy SEAL at one point in time. You know, it turns out later in the episode his Navy SEAL skills helped right. him get out of a closet they were locked in. Right. None of that kind of shit. Just Mr. Rose is what he is. Build from there. And and uh, this is that's a good way to sort of segue from this. Um, I, you know, I, I'm going to I'm going to talk kind of bring up my example here would be Letterkenny, um, which I, I do recommend that you watch. But I would I would recommend you not start from the beginning. Um, they have some like they have some holiday episodes that I would start with that give you like an idea okay. of like the characters you're gonna see because it's sort of the the whirlwind pace at which they talk and like the 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 back and forth is like very quick and it's filled with a lot of um, mm-hmm. uh, you know Canadianisms and it's and it's filled right. with some interesting accents it can kind of be hard to keep up um, but like their holiday episodes are a little bit more laid out just so like every character has a chance to lay out jokes and stuff. So it's actually like a, it's actually like a good way to start if you will. Cause like the, the storylines okay. don't really matter. Um, and like what they're doing doesn't really matter for the rest of like the, the seasons. But anyway, um, the, the thing that sort of the thing that like about Letterkenny is, and that, that it has in common, it has, you know, it has the same sort of DNA, which is Creek, even though it's a vastly different style of comedy. Um, it's that it's, it's glorifying, and a lot of a lot of Canadian comedies do this, but um, you know these these two Shit's Creek and Letterkenny in, in particular, glorifying like the regular people. I mean, these shows and a lot of Canadian comedies are love letters to small town Canada, and they are unabashedly holding up people who are convenience stores, uh, convenience store owners, farmers, um, the people that you know the the people that run the the town hotel in Shit's Creek, the people that run the cafe, the people in Letterkenny that are um excuse me the you know the like the farmers union or farmers the farmers council like all these people are like Mm -hmm. the people to follow and they have the most normal even though like bizarre things happen they have like these otherwise very normal lives where strange things happen you and i both know that if if they were to again if you're to pull these comedies and they would be written in america um someone like it, it would even if it was johnny rose losing all his money in, in a, you know, in the say the John Rose equivalent in America, losing all his money, there would all of his celebrity friends would still show up. Johnny Rose would be the focus of the show. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be their life with Stevie, with Twyla, with Bob, with all the other characters. And in Letterkenny, it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be time spent on the farm with the people. It wouldn't be the time spent with the drug addicts. It wouldn't be the time spent with the with the crazy gay preacher. Like it would be time spent with other more you know quote-unquote more like high-profile people as opposed to the regular people that make up the town oh right exactly like what you're talking about with Shit's creek and the roses and stuff like it would be all of a sudden like david beckham shows up for an episode and turns out he was friends with mr rose and they're gonna go get drunk in Shit's creek and at the end of the episode johnny's gonna have this life revelation that makes him save the the family you know it'd be some Mm -hmm. dumb shit like that you know completely reliant on you're right. These higher profile kind of kind of things, like these higher profile elements of life. Whereas Letterkenny specifically, which I have seen 
two or three episodes right in the beginning. So it's good to know to watch some of these holiday episodes for that. I, I liked what I saw. I just yeah. I didn't follow up with it. I can't remember the exact reason, but um, like you're right, there would be um, it would be more focus on d- different things, not just like these small town people and these interesting characters that you meet within the small town. Right. Exactly. It's, you know, that that's, and, and again, like it's just sort of since, since there is this sort of this, like this lo-fi field, everything, um, in, in Canadian entertainment that it just makes sense to focus on the people who would be quote unquote lower fi and, you know, making, making the big, I wouldn't call them dumb. I don't mean dumb like in, in this kind of sense, but like in letter Kenny, making the big dumb farm guys, your central cast, your, your, your core characters that sort of automatically brings everything down to earth a little bit because they're not, you know, they're, they're not, um, they're not celebrities. They're not going to, they're not going to talk about whenever they do talk about like um you know celebrity stuff it's usually sort of in a sarcastic almost mocking kind of way it's from the whole show mm-hmm. basically gets grounded in like a in a in a you know in a surreal way but it still gets grounded in more of a um in more of a regular person's kind of view yeah i gotcha dude i understand what you're saying for sure whereas like there's like there's uh there's like some hockey players on the show and they're like junior level um you know they're like it's Canadian hockey is very, very different from, like, how we think of it. Like, there are junior leagues that have... Like, like there'll be, like, a junior league team in, like, list of all Canada, population, like, 1,200, that has, like, three current NHL... Or that has, like, three future NHL players on it. It's, it's, it's like, really strange the way Canadian junior hockey works. But anyway, there's, like, there's two mm-hmm. hockey... There's two junior hockey players that are part of the... Uh, that are, you know, part of the core cast. Uh, or, I guess, like, just outside the core cast. But, like, if this was an American show they would be given a lot more run to like show off their hockey stuff because that's like a sort of exit out into something else that could be like bigger and better. Whereas they, they get like, they definitely get their run. Like there's plenty of hockey that happens cause it's fucking Canada. Um, but like, it's not about them being like great at hockey. It's about all the stupid shit that they get into while they're playing hockey. Oh, right. Yeah, you bet. An American show would take all the moment in the world or all the time in the world to make sure we knew how great these dudes were at hockey, like and actually see it and stuff like that. You know, it wouldn't it would there would definitely be like a big focus on the game and not necessarily about the characters. Like all of a sudden episodes would become dependent upon a game or even so much to the point where like the um uh, what happens after the game, like a big game win in the beginning, and then all the characters do dumb shit, and, and the later on in the episode, there would be more of an attachment to uh, right to that. And, they, and the, believe me, there's hockey. there's a couple there's a couple episodes where like the hockey game is is like the focus, but it's like it's one <laughs> like just thinking about the one episode in particular, it's it's like a whole it, it's like it's based on a bet, and like the women's hockey team has to play the men's hockey team. And it's just fucking, it's, it's like a ridiculous, it gives this one character a really big chance just to be an asshole to everyone. And it's kind of great, but, um, yeah, like okay. it's, they're just not the focus and hockey isn't the focus, even though there happens to be plenty of hockey that happens. Yeah, 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 for sure. How, how long is Letterkenny, are they still making new episodes of that or is it like all wrapped up? Um, the season eight just dropped, uh, I don't know, a few, like a couple months ago. Okay, gotcha. And like, um, if you were to make a compare, is Letterkenny better than the Trailer Park Boys? Like, were you a big Trailer Park Boys I, I, fan? I watched enough of it, and I like Letterkenny significantly more. Okay, I gotcha. Like, some of the Trailer Park Boys stuff, it's 
like whatever I could even come to it in my mind just seemed to be like, um, it seemed to be some like very like splash in the pan type thing, like something that, um, you know, it may be funny, like for five minutes and then all of a sudden it's kind of not anymore. And like, once you get the, once you get the the hook and the idea of what they're doing, it all kind of sounds to be the same. Yeah. Yeah. I I would, I would agree with you. I think, I think trailer park boys is significantly better in gif form. Like, cause there's just like a lot of, there's just (laughs) a lot of silly things that happen. Um, you have have, like bubbles making like fucking stupid faces all the time. It's, it's one of those shows that like it, 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 like it has produced a lot of really worthwhile gifts. Let's just put it that mm-hmm. way. I gotcha. I gotcha. Interesting. I, I, I know what, you're, what you mean by that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just if, if you could think of like any, any particular reasons that like some of these traits really stand out, like what's, what's causing these things to really come through uh, Canadians, Canadian entertainment. Like I gotta say, dude, it's because we're like to the South of them and the American entertainment industry is such a juggernaut and it's so all over the place and all over the world that, you know, I, and people like have to remember that Canada is its own country. It's not an extension of America. They do do things differently up there to a certain degree. It's not exactly the same as it is here. So whatever, like if we're talking about like the big like CGI stuff or whatever, they have us for that. They don't need to make those kind of movies, you know, and it gives them the opportunity to really make their own stuff and to really like define their own like identity as as an entertainment industry and stuff like that. It's a, the, the the comparison that I think of is like you know like how we're here in America and stuff like we do things like kind of the exact opposite of the British. Like we don't like coffee is the big thing here. It's not tea. tea yeah. It, what what would maybe happening with um, can, Canadian entertainment is almost as maybe some kind of an answer to some of the things that they don't like about American cinema. And then it starts to evolve and they start to develop these traits. These traits become more pronounced. And with the um, with Netflix and with Amazon and all the streaming services, these shows and these forms of entertainment are are getting out there. We're seeing them and you know, they're attracting American audiences and maybe the style is like, Hey, if you're, if you're just kind of over some of the American shit, why don't you come watch us? We're sort of like it. And it's just a little simpler to follow. So I I have to think that like a lot of the development of these traits and a lot of the things that, that have made these traits, you know, staples or very identifiable in terms of Canadian entertainment is because they, because we're so close to them. You know, it's like mm-hmm. our entertainment industry is kind of like affecting them. Oh, for, I mean, for sure, American entertainment affects a lot of a, a lot of things. But I, I think you, you're, I, I think you're hitting on something that's really interesting that I was thinking about too, is that even even American cinema, American TV, we have no shame in copying what the British are doing, or the Australians are doing, or the or the Germans are doing, or for that matter, what the Canadians are doing it doesn't seem like mm-hmm. the Canadians are very interested in copying what we're doing. Um, they don't like, there yeah. isn't, there isn't a yet a third version of the office that the Canadians are producing right now for themselves. There, <laughs> there isn't, um, you know, there isn't, they're not porting over British shows and redoing them. Uh, they're not porting over Norwegian shows and redoing them. They're just like, all right, well that's fine. We're just going to continue to make uh, this weird Canadian comedy about like these indigenous people. 
you guys can you guys can keep yeah. copying the British if you want. We'll just keep doing this. <laughs> yeah, it's like they really are going for their own individuality. But you're right, not doing the Canadian answer to the office, or not doing you know like a, a Canadian Superman. Even though I know they have one in the comics, but it's not like there's not like a a huge demand for like Canadian superhero movies and mccu or something like that you know the marvel <laughs> right. cinematic canadian universe right. like they don't have that and like you know they and i guess because if they ever wanted it we have it here in america by the truckload you know right. what I'm and saying? We'll, we'll be happy to give it to them oh yeah we'll be happy to give it to them at a, at a whopping 17 dollars a ticket mm-hmm. too like i mean that's a you know if you guys if they want superhero movies get ready because like you know, we got the Justice League, which is out now. Still haven't seen any of it. Um, you got Suicide Squad. The next year, you're going to have four Marvel movies and three DC movies. You have all the superhero action in the world that you could possibly want and stuff. So why not Why not develop your own identity to stand out? You mm-hmm. know, because there's a pretty solid chance that a Canadian film that tries to copy uh, American styles of humor and action and all that stuff is probably going to get lost in the sea of American movies. Exactly, exactly. And I think uh, I think something that is definitely not underrated here is that how how much how much cheaper it is to how much cheaper and easier it is to get something seen now than it, than it used to be. So mm-hmm. you know, so like when you think of, when you think about some of these like more isolated places in Canada. Maybe someone does have like an interesting story to tell. Well, it's pretty cheap. You could, and we've seen that. We've seen it here in the United States. We've seen people shoot entire movies on their phones or their iPads or whatever. Like it's right. not something that's that strange. So, like there, there are Canadians right now walking around in their hands with devices they can make entire movies with, and and you know, and that's just you know that's just phones. I mean, it, video cameras are cheap. Regular cameras are cheap. You know, cheaper comparatively. And you still get a pretty good quality of picture out of it, so you can you can tell a story all on your own, and you know you can upload it to YouTube. This is how Letterkenny got started. Um, Letterkenny was like a YouTube, just like some like YouTube shorts before it got picked up by Crave Canada, turned into a series, and obviously got picked up by uh, by Hulu. Um, there are, and obviously this is like for anyone, but especially for especially for like people maybe who are trying to be filmmakers in places like Can- in rural places in Canada that do not have a lot of money to necessarily have mm-hmm. a studio nearby or to get to a studio or to rent camera equipment. You, you at the very least can like shoot something and put it online, put it wherever, you know, however you want to disseminate it and like people will see it. Um, so I think just like the cost of this coming down has really the cost of like producing movies and TV shows coming down and like the, the ubiquitous amount of cameras that are everywhere has really opened the door for so many more Canadian voices that 20, 30 years ago wouldn't have had their stories told or getting told now. Oh, God, yeah, dude. I'm telling you, when it comes to YouTube and the invention of YouTube and like the, you know, the um, less expensive thing of technology and everything, these have opened doors that we, that people will like never have gotten a, a chance to in a previous life. And even like, it's even like people here in America, like take, take Sarah Cooper, for example, mm-hmm. like it's a woman lip syncing Trump videos and she's on Netflix now. It's because you, you make it and somebody get it, it gets an audience. You keep doing it enough times. You're going to get better at it. And it eventually gains an audience. It gets somebody's attention. That turns into a deal. Like, and and that is honestly like 
that's the way to do it, dude. Just go out there, make stuff, keep making it until you're fucking blue in the face and then some. Just keep putting it online and like, you know, maybe one day somebody will check it out and you could eventually do what you love for a living and everything. It's just that is like such a beautiful that is like such like one of the more truly beautiful things about YouTube. Like, believe me, I love watching videos of people getting kicked in the balls. <laughs> and believe me, put it in front of me all day long. OK, but when it comes to like actually giving people a a starting point, not necessarily a foot in the door, but at least like a step towards that door for you to put your foot in. It's one of the greatest things about YouTube. Yep. Yep, but if you are, if you're like a, I, I don't know, like off the top of my head, if you're like a Métis Indian living in uh, living in Western Canada and you have a hilarious story to tell and it gets, if it's really that good and it's on YouTube or even fucking TikTok or Instagram and it gets enough eyeballs, you it'll, someone will say, this is good, we have to see more of it. Like someone will find it. Yeah, it'll get you a meeting. Like somebody will at least call you up to be like, hey, let's hear some more of your ideas, you know? Exactly, exactly. All right, so Chema, I didn't include Canadian music in this for two reasons. Uh, one, because it would probably extend this episode and be hilariously long. Um, that's like really, yes. really first and foremost. But also because I, I when it when it, when we think of sort of not necessarily pop music, but like when we think of like the prevalent forms of music in in North America. What really separates Canadian music from American music in your eyes? Okay, like, there's really not much. I mean, nothing. That's actually nothing. Yeah, I mean, mean, like, there there are are bands that are Canadian, but it's like, it's not like their music is a Canadian specific music. You know what I'm saying? It's not, there's no, like, uh, yeah, I mean, there are bands that, like, when, when I look at some groups and stuff like that, I guess. In a way, when I hear like Arcade Fire is from Canada, it it sort of makes sense to me. Um, But there's really like what I'm what I'm trying to say here is that like if Arcade Fire and I know some of the people are from America, but like Arcade Fire could have started in Toronto, it could have started in Birmingham, Alabama, Mm -hmm. and they probably would have still put out Wake Up as a single. So there's there's just there's just not a lot. And even when I try to like maybe think of what could be a cool hot take. I'm really not like I like so what maybe their music sounds is a little more like, um you know, like a, a little more northern. Like you could tell from the lyrics that they know where they are, mm-hmm. but the music's still the same. I you mean, know, like even Japan droids, everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I think there's some things you can identify for sure. Like, I think like when you think of like the Tragically Hip uh, and, and Gord Downey, like there's definitely something a little bit unique about them. But you also like you could also pull out that uniqueness from a lot of alt rock bands from the eighties and, and into the nineties that have a sound that's very yeah. similar to the tragically hip. Um, I, I just don't think there's enough of a differentiator um, it, it, in terms of, again, in terms of like what the popular music is, I don't think there's enough of a differentiator in between, you know, in between can- in Canadian music and American music for that matter, British music for that matter, fucking Australian music for that matter. Take your pick. I don't think there's enough of a differentiator. Um, you know, like it's you. There are bands from. I didn't realize that Mumford and Sons was English. Oh yeah, yeah. I only knew I, that because I saw them live. That's right, it. That, no idea. That's you, the only reason I know. That. You could have told me that they were from like the southern United States. I would have believed you. Um, like, <laughs> right. there's just things like that. Like, I just don't think there's enough of a separator when you think of popular music. But when you think of, I think where like the where the big differentiators come in 
are when you think about like very niche stuff, like when you think about like indigenous music, you think about, um, mm-hmm. you think about like stuff, you know, we, I, you and I were talking before about, um, like Houston rap that, that chopped and screwed, like that's different. Right. Um, there's, uh, yeah. and, and actually real recently you and I had a conversation about English rap and the stuff they call grime music. Like that's very mm-hmm. different, but none of this is like mainstream music. It sits, in fact, right. a lot of it yeah, sits like very far outside the mainstream. Yeah, and and dude, like when you when you see like Arcade Fire and like all these Canadian acts, like they don't have indigenous tattoos. They don't have any like somebody maybe wearing a shirt with a maple leaf on it, BFD. But there's no, they just look like regular musicians and stuff like that. There's no like there's there's not like a a, a visual kind of thing that makes them like that connects you to Canadian music or Canadian styles. It's not like there's some prominent tribal tattoo or like maybe like a, um, a tattoo pattern like they have in like New Zealand and stuff like that. Like there, there's not nothing like that. So it's just really hard to make that differentiation. And the only time that like a band, like that I start to acknowledge a band as like, Hey, this Canadian band, blah, 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 blah. is when like, I guess like it's the only way that I could kind of describe what the music is. It's just like, yeah, they're a band from Canada. It's like, there's a lot of people in the band, like it's alternative, I guess. So it's, it's just so hard to make that connection. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're like, for example, one of the, one of the groups I listened to, uh, I think they've recently changed their name, but like they were for a long time, a tribe called red. Um, I think they are like the hallucination now. Like that is, that is like two very specific kinds of Canadian music. Um, I, I, mm-hmm. I, when I think of Canadian, when I do think of like a very particular kind of sect of Canadian music, there's a lot of electronic stuff. And I'm assuming that's because it's pretty, it's a lot cheaper to buy a keyboard and synthesizer than it is to try to form a band. Um, and you know, right. one person could, could be a band essentially. Um, yeah. But it's, so it's, it's Canadian electronic music meets, meets uh, uh first nations um you know tribal da- tribal chanting and tribal music and like that is uniquely canadian but like there is no comparison to anything else in the united states other than other other than um you know additionally like american indian music that's it there's the right. only two comparisons and but there's those two exist so far outside of the realm of popular music that they're not that they're not worth talking about it would be shit that you and I could only talk so much about and the segment would be very <laughs> right. short. Right. Yeah. I got, I dude, I totally gotcha. And it's funny. Cause now, now that we've been talking about this, like the bands, like the bands that I have like really, really enjoyed, like I, I would have to say, like if I was to give you like 15 bands that I've enjoyed so much since 2000, I, there's probably like four of them in the top 10. Now that I think about it, it's just weird. Cause it's like, like the band fucked up or whatever, like fucked up is like, it's a hardcore band. It's, it's, it's punk. The songs are a little bit longer. It's Canadian, Mm -hmm. but like, it's not, what I'm saying is that like somebody here in the States could do the same thing. And we have the States answer to it. It's called Titus Andronicus. So it's Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I mean, it's like, they just happen to be from Canada, but it's not necessarily longer hardcore punk songs are this super specific Canadian. Right. Right. I think it's, and I think it's a big reason is that, I, well, not a, a big reason. The biggest reason, the most obvious reason, is that that American music has dominated worldwide for a long, long, long time. Uh, I mean, we're right. talking 60-plus years of American music being played 
everywhere else in the world. Right. That's true. Yeah. And like every, every now and then, like, like a band from Canada, like cracks it over here, but we still, I'm trying to think who would be like the biggest Canadian rock star. Like it, Nickelback. It's, that is, Nickelback would probably be a, I mean, yeah, I, I can't I, think of I anyone hate, else. I hate Nickelback. Yeah. I, I can't think of anybody who's on that level of like mega stardom. And unfortunately, well, I mean, had to be Drake in the weekend, <laughs> Drake in the weekend, but like not bad. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're both. The weekend is from Canada. I totally forgot yeah. about that. That's right. And I, Drake, I, you know, that's he's, he's on, he can't get any more Canadian than Drake. <laughs> yeah, I know. Seriously. All right. Uh, little, little bit of trivia here. Last little bit of trivia here. Um, so the Canadians also invented documentary film. Uh, the first, the first real, the first like real, real first movie that's really considered a documentary. Uh, we've actually talked about it. I know we talked about it in high school. Um, the Nook of the North uh, from 1922. Uh, mm-hmm. Capture the lives of the Inuit people living uh, on the Quebec portion of the Hudson Bay. Uh, the director was American, but uh, Canadian film crew and obviously filmed in Canada. Uh, Canadians were the first to also do documentary film. That, I think at one point in time I knew that, but that, I have heard of Nanook of the North, um, but I, I did not recall that specific thing at this particular moment. And that is also very, very interesting too. Like, yeah, so we owe documentary filmmaking to uh, Canada and also mockumentary filmmaking as well. That's right, that's right. All right, Chema, let's move on to a little section here I'm calling Flashpoint, uh, which is, in fact, the name of a Canadian TV show that starred the one and only Pink Ranger of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Amy Jo Johnson. No shit. No shit. Oh, God, she's in... I think they brought her back for the Power Rangers. There's something with Power Rangers going on where some of the older actors are starting to become a part of a new series or maybe they're being worked into a new movie, but I think so. she's, yeah. she's made, he- she's made headlines recently along yeah. with the, the guy who plays Tommy and the Austin St. John, the red Ranger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, like, I, know, I, I, I think they are doing, I think they are doing some sort of like reboot of the TV show in some capacity. I can't okay. remember exactly what they're doing with it though. Yeah. I just realized I know way too much about power Rangers is like one of those things that happened. I shouldn't have been into it. I should have been too old for it, but instead I fell into it. And yeah, it's, I got way too much knowledge for that. Such such an interesting moment in, in American and for that matter, Japanese pop culture. So, um, yeah, very strange. And like, it was so weird. Like, like when I, when you first like knew that, like, Oh, those, those people are just filming the scenes out of, essentially just out of costume are the only things that they're yeah. filming. That's interesting. Right. <laughs> yeah, no shit. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> uh, anyway, anyway, so this little section is called flashpoint. And I want to, I want to know about like your first experience with, with your first exposure, I guess, to what is truly like Canadian entertainment, not necessarily just like it has a Canadian director or a couple of Canadians in the cast, like something that like really is, truly a piece of Canadian entertainment. Do you remember like the first thing that you saw that you, that you were kind of like, you knew for sure, like this clearly is an American. This is, this is a vehicle from Canada clearly. Okay. Like I didn't know it to be Canadian right away. It got explained to me very, very soon into my discovery of kids in the hall. That's, that was my, like seemed to be my first, there you go. First, like, you know, this is Canada. This is something I know is Canadian. And I remember when I first started watching it, I, it was just like, okay, I know this is a sketch show and I, I'm basically coming off of 
being like a big fan of the state and everything. I, I love the state and I, I kids in the hall. I saw probably comedy central, like not while it was airing on TV, but maybe like a couple, you know, five to 10 years down the road. Yeah, for sure. And, it, it wasn't, it wasn't on American TV until like the mid nineties at the earliest, I think. I think so. I think HBO finally picked it up mm-hmm. somewhere like after a run on Canadian television in the eighties. And I got into it, like I got into it after the fact. And right. I was a big fan. I was a big fan of the state growing up. I, I still love the state. I, I actually am still fans of a lot of the, uh, prominent actors and actresses that were on the show. Mm. And like, I kind of thought kids in the hall was just, I mean, it, it is sort of like the state, but I kind of thought it was going to be a little bit more like the States, like in, in the way that they kind of like told the jokes and some of the characters and everything, but it was a little different. Um, it was a little bit drier. It was definitely a little more out there as far as like what I knew and liked of sketch comedy. Mm-hmm. And like, honestly, like I, I think I was in like a pizza hut or something and I'm talking to somebody. He's like, yeah, like I saw this kids in the hall show, thought it was pretty good. And they're like, Oh yeah, you know, those guys are from Canada. And then all of a sudden, like, Everything just seemed to make sense. To me. <laughs> yeah. Just like that, that, that one sentence of, yeah, those guys are from Canada. I'm like, okay, I guess. Yep. I think I got this whole thing figured out now. <laughs> like, I think that that just basically, uh, gave me everything that I needed to know about kids in the hall. And once, once I kind of knew that, I think it, it helped me kind of understand the show a little bit more in, in just some dumb way. It just, this too, yeah, they're Canadian. And I'm like, okay, so this is definitely like the way Canadian humor is. Like maybe mm-hmm. this is like the style that's really prominent up there. And once I, you know, once I kind of same thing with Schitt's Creek got familiar with it, it became something that I really, really enjoyed. And I, I enjoy seeing the, um, you know, the, the core cast members kind of pop up and shit every now and then, like Kevin McDonald and Mark McKinney and all that stuff just oh, kind yeah. of popping up in random roles, even to this day. Do you want to feel really fucking old? Oh, I'm all I are. I do regularly. <laughs> um, Bruce McCulloch is 60. Oh, Jesus God. <laughs> I remember him wow. as like being our age in, in yeah. the hall and like, he's fucking 60. Yeah, like I, man, I remember this like the the baby face guy like looking all young standing mm-hmm. in front of the camera and everything. And man, I mean, like I said, I I often feel old, especially as I get older and stuff. And there are certain things like that where it's just like a, a nice little reminder of um <laughs> of your humanity, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> Do kid, kids in the hall such a fucking good choice? Um, not I I would have just real quickly not my first experience with with Canadian entertainment, but. Um, definitely like my longest, my longest sort of Canadian love, if you will, is kids in the hall. And I'm definitely going to be talking about that later on here. And Mm -hmm. today, like I was just watching in, in preparation for this, I was watching some sketches on, uh, on YouTube, dude, they, it it is, it is such a very particular sense of sense, you know, comedic sensibility, but like, right. Good God. Is it still funny? Once you, once you, once you know what the joke is and you're in on the joke, they fucking play it for every fucking laugh they can. They're so good. Yeah. And that was like one of the first times I ever realized that like there are styles of humor. I mean, it, like cause when you're seeing stuff from America and then all of a sudden there's kids in the hall comes into your life. It's like, wait a minute. Are you speaking to tell me that humor works differently in other areas? <laughs> yeah, like, right. it, it just, it, it just kind of opens your, it kind of opens your mind and opens your eyes to like, maybe like if you're in a situation where you go to watch like a, a British movie or a French film, Italian film, whatever it might be, 
it, it just kind of gives you a reminder that like, Hey, by the way, like, you know, things may be a little bit different over here and it doesn't mean it's any, that, that it sucks. It's just different than the way we tell jokes, the way that we present storytelling. So mm-hmm. it was kind of like this like weird eye opening moment for something I probably should have known. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, like, have you ever seen, have you ever seen like any, um, like any Mexican entertainment, be it like a telenovela or like a comedy? I've seen like some of the tele like some of the Telemundo like kind of soap opera shows. That Dude, it's wild. Beyond, <laughs> like, what, yeah, what they consider to be funny and dramatic is wildly different from what we consider to be funny or dramatic. It's it, it's that that really is a very that really is a very step a step in a very different direction from our drama and from our comedy, um, even more so than like what Canadian entertainment is. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, so love, love kids in the hall. Um, the, Chema, the first thing that I ever remember, uh, strange brew with Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas. Oh yeah. Oh my God. I know exactly what yes. you mean. The movie, right? Uh, the movie. Yep. Yes. The movie oh. based off of, they were, they were recurring, uh, they were recurring characters on the sketch comedy show SCTV, um, uh, which, mm-hmm. uh, gave us Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara for that matter. Um, along with a lot of other Canadian uh, comedians and, and actors. Um, but like, so like they were they were a recurring sketch on that show, and I think it's because it was it was the first movie that I saw that obviously clearly Canadian. Um, they talk about Canada. They talk about their Canadian beers. Um, there's there's all sorts of little quirky Canadian things happening from minute one to it's a short movie. I think it's only like eighty five minutes. Um, so like minute one to minute eighty five is just like it's Canadian quirk all the way through. But it also like like I didn't. It's also like the first movie that I ever saw that was like, um, you know, that was based off of sketch, the off of a sketch show. So like, you know, I hadn't seen, mm-hmm. I saw it well before night at the Roxbury and some of the other SNL, um, the SNL like movies that, that sprung off of that. So like, this is my first experience right. with a, with a sketch comedy movie. And so it already violated the rules of a movie because it felt like, again, you're just basically following, uh, Bob and Doug from scene from basically not from scene to scene, but you're following them like from sketch to sketch, basically. Um, and like yeah. all the sketches patched together to tell the story about, uh, about like the new owners of the brewery, uh, poisoning the, uh, poisoning their favorite beer, um, or like pointing with like mind control stuff or something. I, I, I don't remember the exact specifics of it, but it was just like, you're watching like a long form sketch. And so that was kind of off putting, you know, off putting, but you're kind of like, what the fuck is this? And then, right. But then they're combining it with like that sort of like two regular Canadian bros, are going to try to, you know, try to fix the one problem they can fix, get their beer back and make it good again and make it non-tainted again. And it, it's just sort of like it, with with all these like little one-liners and jokes and things that like, I know that they're like, when I was watching it, I think I was like 12 at the time or 11 at the time, like a lot of this stuff just missed me because I'm like, where, mm-hmm. what the fuck are they even talking about? And like upon right. subsequent watches, and now having like a more full picture of like what Canadian, the sort of the surreal nature of some Canadian humor, dude, that movie's really fucking funny. Like it, it is. Oh yeah. It is a it is a bizarre funny movie from start to start from beginning to end. I fucking love that movie so much. Yeah, dude, I've I've seen that movie. I I didn't see it when I was younger. Believe it or not, I actually saw that movie like eleven years ago. And the only reason I remember that is because uh, I was Watchmen was premiering like like it either was it was coming out very very soon and there was a power outage in my neighborhood and like 
uh, the power outage lasted for like three or four days. Like we didn't have mm-hmm. any power due to the major storm ravaged Ohio city. And, uh, like I read Watchmen like two or three times just with a flashlight, like in my room trying to kill time. The last day I couldn't take it anymore. So I went down to Yax's house to watch the season finale of modern family. Cause I was like, that was basically all I had to do was just like, I was going to go down to Joe's right. house. And then after we got done watching that, for no reason whatsoever, this is 2009, he wants to watch Strains Brew. And I was like, yeah, what the hell? I got nowhere else to go. Turned out to be one of the like one of the best stupid off-kilter times I had mm-hmm. ever had with the axe. It was just the two of us watching Strange Brew in his house. <laughs> yeah, it's dude, it's a that that's one of those that is a that is a trip into a, a very specific a very specific and sort of surreal style of, of Canadian comedy. But again, at the center of it, just two regular dudes, which is like yeah. pretty standard for all Canadian comedies. Is, is Rick Moranis Canadian? Yes, he is. Okay. Okay. Very nice. Oh, great. This makes it even better. Awesome. I, I thought maybe like him and he, maybe he Canadian carpet bagged and like, you know, had left America and head up there or something. No, no, no. But he's, he's, I, he's like 100% Canadian, obviously. So is, so is uh, Dave Thomas. Um, they, I mean, like Rick Moranis, other than do, doing some voice work, um, in things here and there, and he was just like recently in a Ryan Reynolds commercial. Um, mm-hmm. he hasn't done anything big in like almost 20 years. Yeah, I, I know that I actually, I covered when I was writing for Nerdbot, like I, he did a voiceover on the Goldbergs. I think there was like that's, an 80s that episode right. of yeah. the Goldbergs that he, he, and I think that that may have been like his big sort of reintroduction into like, Hey, Rick Moranis is finally doing something again. And, and that was only like a couple of years ago. That was like three years ago at the most. Yeah. He hasn't, um, <clears throat> he hasn't done anything other than like, other than like some voice work like that and like, uh, been in some cartoons. Um, and those like come very sporadically, like, like they come like every like three or four years. Um, so like he hasn't mm-hmm. been like in a movie or a TV show in like physical form, uh, since like 1999 or 2000 or something like that. Yeah, I can't even remember what he like what he would look like. I mean, I remember young Rick Moranis, but just like I'm almost afraid to see what he looks like now because I, I mean, uh, actually, going to see doesn't look know, bad. You oh, you did, he got um, someone randomly punched him uh, on in New York when he was walking down the street. No shit. Like, <laughs> no just, shit. I last, didn't know that. last year, someone just like ran by and punched him in the head. Wow, what an asshole! I know. Fucking with Rick. Moranis you don't fuck like with that. Rick Moranis. He's, he's a, a goddamn ass. Canadian treasure. No. Yeah, anyway. dude, that guy's like an he's like an, an off kilter American treasure, like a you know a second degree American treasure. Yes, that exactly, guy's the man. exactly. All right, so yeah, um, yeah, you know he like he, oh, sorry, oh yeah, I no, was no, just no. like I was just in, in admiration. I was in admiration of the man because like I had heard that he retired to just go like raise his family. Like what a Pretty fucking much. stud! You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like it's something so simple, but yet so commendable all I mean, at the same time. It's like, that's, if you're going to do it, do it for that. Yeah. No, I mean, the dude made, a, I mean, made a lot of money, <laughs> like made a lot of money yeah, and I'm sure he's right. still getting residual checks because Ghostbusters get shown on TNT on a fucking loop, uh, pretty much, pretty much every year. So I'm sure he's still getting residuals from that. So if you don't want to work anymore, you know, if you don't want to do full blown work anymore, why do it? No, ex- exactly. Yeah, man, that's how you do it. Just go in, make like some bank on like three or four big blockbusters, and just and just walk out with your head held high. That's what I'm yep. talking about. Exactly. So, what was the was the kids in the hall? Was this like a gateway drug for you in terms of like getting into more Canadian stuff? The Canadian schneef. 
so like i'll be honest with you like i um i have experienced more forms of canadian entertainment since then obviously but it wasn't something that like specifically made me want to go out and see canadian stuff i usually seem to find out like retroactively where if i watch something all of a sudden either while i'm imd being it now or like in discussion like mm-hmm. earlier on in life that's how i found out that it was canadian it did like by far and away like if we're talking like gateway drug this would be the first thing where i'm like oh yeah that this is enjoyable but like i just i wasn't like one of those guys like you know how there's like all british tv person in your life you know you probably have somebody that only watches british tv shows uh, my it mom. wasn't like there was my mom watches like okay. all british yeah, TV yeah. Shows. <laughs> yeah yeah so like it, it wasn't like a um like a diving board like oh my god i'm going to actively search this out but it did like i guess it did like make me aware and warm me up to um, other non-American um, television and stuff. So it, it kind of explained a lot of things. And there are movies that I have seen later on where I look it up and I'm like, oh, it was a Canadian movie. Oh, okay, yeah, that that makes a whole hmm. lot of sense. But um, I, I wouldn't say this is like a gateway drug and then I'm just going to start doing a bunch of Canadian movies. It was a gateway drug where it's like, okay, yeah, this is enjoyable. So if I see somebody passing around at a party, I'm not going to call the cops. That kind of gateway drug. Gotcha. Comparison, gotcha. I guess. So was, uh, was kids in your hall then, was that your first favorite? Yeah, that was, that was the first favorite. I, I have seen other examples of Canadian entertainment, which one of them I will get to um, when we get towards the end, but that was the first identifiable this is Canadian thing that I really appreciated. Some of the other stuff I found out was Canadian, like after the fact, some of it, I don't really consider to be Canadian, even though it definitely, it's not like Canadian stuff like that, that I knew at the time. So kids in the hall is my, that's the first favorite. Yeah. uh, I am. I am with you on this one. Strange brew is not my first favorite. Kids in the hall was my first favorite. And this really was like sort of a gateway drug um, in a matter of speaking because like I really wanted to know more. I wanted to see more from you know our troop. I wanted to see more Dave Foley, mm-hmm. Scott Thompson, McKinney, McDonald, McCullough. Like I wanted to see more of them, and I, I did get into some more of their stuff because I didn't get into it. At, well, like most people in this country, I didn't get into it until like you know ninety four, ninety five ish, somewhere along that, somewhere along those lines. Um, and by then, by that point in time, you had uh, Foley was already on news radio. Um, I want to say McCullough and McKinney were both on SNL by like 97, 98, somewhere around that range. Yeah, that's about, that's about right. Yep. So like, you know, they were already um, sort of branching out of Canada by that point in time anyway. Um, so like, it really was sort of like a, a gateway drug in that, in that sense that like, I was like, all right, I'm going to check out news radio. I'm going to check out some of these other shows that these guys are in. Uh, and like to this day, like I still, I still get like a, a, like the most, like I still get a kick when I see, one of them pop up in something, whether it's uh, McKinney's is McKinney in Superstore. That's what he's in, right? Oh, oh yeah, he's the manager. Yes. Yep. yes, the man is Glenn. Um, so like whenever like he comes on screen, like I'm just like, ah, there's McKinney. Like it's it's just like fun oh, yeah. seeing him again, and like I love whenever they pop up in anything. It's always a fun time. Oh yeah, like Kevin McDonald when he popped up in that '70s show, he was the mm-hmm. priest and everything yep. like that. Uh, yeah, you just th- those are guys that. Um, it, it's like it's the same thing that I have with like Ken Marino, David Wayne, Michael Ian Black. Like the, oh, yes. It's yep. people that I've seen forever, seen for what is now a better part of my life. And it's just it kind of makes you happy to like, number one, see that 
people you've enjoyed since you were a kid still working in Hollywood because God only knows it's a threat cutthroat business out mm-hmm. here. But it also just it kind of gives you that like sense of familiarity. Like you may not it, you kind of sort of know like what you're getting from these people. And even if even if it's something like a little bit different, who the hell cares because they've been around for 30 years and they need to do something different anyway. You know, it's, <laughs> Mark McKinney's not necessarily even though he basically does kind of play a similar guy sometimes, Mark McKinney is not a dude who made a 30-year uber-successful career off of like a catchphrase or something like that. So right. it's just cool to see these people right. continue to, to work. Mark McKinney, his character Glenn, I've, I've only seen, I've seen like a handful of Superstore episodes. It's definitely not bad. Um, it's, it's something that like maybe I should yeah. consider watching in the background while I work. Uh, but like Mark McKinney's character Glenn 100% feels like his chicken lady character on Kids in the Hall. Mm-hmm. Like the same, yep. ca- like, it's just like this, I don't know what it is, it's the same kind of weird cadence that he uses on his voice. Yeah, yeah, his voice is almost like a little bit squeakier and stuff, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a little more like a, like a, a, not necessarily adult, a little bit more like infantilized and everything, yeah. and the fact that on the show he, he's like a religious nut, but kind of stumbles into the wrong thing every now and then it's it's really great and I, i'll tell you like superstore jess and i love it it's definitely a show to watch on the in the background mm-hmm. i will tell you it's one of these shows where um the leads are not the funniest characters like all right. the secondary characters right. and they they all make it worthwhile and they're so good that at times you're just like, can't there not be two lead characters? Can't it just be all these other characters in the room with one another? It's it's really well written. Yeah, yeah, no, I got you. I I, I love a, I love when when the ensemble is um, can sort of like take over a show at will. I love that. Yeah, there's there's even some like really unexpected characters that. Like my like some of my favorite characters on the show are the ones that like would not normally be my favorite characters on other shows, but they just kick on the show. It's it's mm-hmm. good. I'm telling you, that definitely worth um uh, some background watching just to get yourself going. For gotcha, sure. gotcha. All right, let's move on to a little section I'm calling "How Are You Now." Um, all my Letterkenny fans out there know that one. Um, so, but we're gonna talk current our sort of our, our current. We're gonna get past like our, our opening introduction to. Uh, um, to um, to Canadian entertainment, we're going to talk about things that uh, I mean. I guess there's nothing stopping you from from naming something that you originally saw that that is one of your favorites. But speaking more, thinking more of like in your recent life, um, you know, let's just let's just call it the past like ten to fifteen years or so. Um, I just yeah. want to know about your top three favorites that are not Shit's Creek or Letterkenny, because um, I think those are two easy answers for anyone who's seen either one. Um, so your top three favorites. And in this case, we can kind of bend the rules a little bit. So it's got to be a production in Canada, directed, run, or directed or written, or in the case of like a TV show, run by a Canadian, mm-hmm. um, mostly Canadian cast, or at the very least, it's got to be set in Canada. Um, so, okay. and, and then I want to know like what you kind of view as the standout from each one of these. It could be a person, you know, a person's performance or something else. So Chema, why don't you go ahead and give me one of your top three here of your more recent okay. favorites. Okay, so I'm going to start off with a Canadian director. And I know I'm not going to say Blade Runner 2049. I'm actually going to throw it back to an early Villeneuve, an earlier Villeneuve film called Enemy. And this is uh, Jake Gyllenhaal playing two different roles. He's basically playing identical strangers. And also um, and Melanie Laurent. Those are J- Jake Gyllenhaal and Melanie Laurent are the two stars. Mm-hmm. 
this movie came out in 2013 and what's actually interesting is it came it premiered like a week or two apart from prisoners so um enemy premiered at toronto international film festival in september of 2013 and prisoners premiered at telluride in like august of 2013 Mm -hmm. so that two-week period was a big period of time for uh villeneuve and i really dig this movie um this movie was shot in canada all the way um it definitely has a very like easy kind of going easy to follow Canadian style plot, I guess to say the least. It's not super, super complicated. Um, it, it is very, very artistic. It's a, this is definitely like a auteur driven movie and stuff like mm. that. And the, the basic plot is um, there's these identical strangers. Uh, Gyllenhaal, um, Hall A is a college professor that he's the main kind of character and Gyllenhaal B is this actor guy, all flashy, you know, like kind of like Vince from Entourage. And actor B or, or Gyllenhaal B is like, hey, Gyllenhaal A, your wife's hot. I'm going to try to hook up with her. And he hitches this plan to try to hook up with his wife and everything goes to hell. And the thing that I really enjoy about this movie that I still cannot quite figure out is there are these references to tarantulas and they happen like two or three times throughout the movie. And in the beginning, it's like, um, like a sex club and there's a tarantula crushed by like a stripper's heel or something like that. And in the end of the movie, um, there's another like really just kind of cool haunting image of a tarantula as the film closes. And the reason that I picked this one, um, number one, I just didn't want to throw out a super popular Villanue film that we probably would have talked about throughout the course of this episode. And it's just also really cool to like see where some of these people come from. And when you take a look at this movie and compare it to like the Blade Runner or Arrival, it's like you could still you could still like identify and still feel some of these Villeneuve movie characteristics. But it's really cool to see them in a more muted setting it's kind of like the difference between watching christopher nolan's the prestige and watching tenet where it's mm-hmm. like it is still the same guy and the earlier work there's still evidence of this guy but it's just really cool to see like how one could go from the prestige or enemy which are both awesome to blade runner and tenet which are both awesome so like that, that is one of my uh, more recent favorites i saw it like just two years ago it was re- uh, recommended to me by the, the one of the dudes i work with and I thought this movie was really great. I highly recommend everybody checking it out. Yeah, that's one of those. I I think it, I I feel like I recently saw something about it, and I'm not really entirely sure if it was research for this, or if maybe it was something I was watching about Dent Villeneuve because because of another like delay or something with Dune or or whatever. Um, but yeah, right. like I he's one of those directors. I really think I need to dig into all of his stuff pre um uh pre sicario and like yeah just go backwards from there because i i guess his like his big breakout film in canada it's like incendie or something like that um is supposed to be like a real like powerhouse movie and like all the things that make denny villeneuve what he is are like on display in that movie supposedly oh very interesting yeah i'm i'm all for it i love this guy I put this on Twitter after leaving the theater in Blade Runner 29. If there was anybody that ever wanted to remake some of my Mona Lisa movies like uh, Citizen Kane or Pulp Fiction, 
I'm not necessarily saying that I would let that happen, but if Villeneuve was attached to the project, I'd entertain the idea. The guy yeah. somehow managed to take, like, dude, I'm telling you, man, like, I never, ever, like, once I, like, really started to absorb Blade Runner, I was like, there's just, why would you ever make a sequel to this? And then here this guy comes along, makes, like, a three-hour-long sequel, and, like, I've watched it, I think... It's twice since it's been on HBO now. Like, it's just so fucking good. Mm-hmm. Like, why not let this guy let him let him do whatever the hell he wants? It's going to be amazing. I just I, I hope that I just really hope that this guy like just stays legit. I just like I just don't want him to take any wrong projects. And I know that he's he's tackled one really complicated franchise only to follow up with Dune, which I know is could not have been easy to uh, remake, especially with everybody's kind of attachment to the original. So. I just feel that this guy is like one of these guys that there's there's really nothing that he can't do, and I just hope he stays at the top of his game. Yeah, I I I can't imagine that I can't imagine that Dune will be bad. Let's put it that no. way. I don't think it'll be a bad movie. It might not reach the heights of I mean, like this. I know we've talked about it before, so I'll just be I'll just be real brief with this thought. Like whoever gets Dune right is going to like it's going to blow everyone away. Like this is a piece of mm-hmm. the, the book specifically, um, not so much the, the eighties movie, the Lynch movie. Um, but like the book is like this piece of sci-fi that has informed so much science fiction. So when did it come out? 68, 66, something like that. Um, it's, it's in the sixties. Yeah. yeah. It has basically since it came out, it has informed and created Basically, sci-fi every every sci-fi story following Dune has had some of Dune's DNA in it. Story, okay. whether it's a book, a screenplay, a play, it doesn't fucking matter. It has Dune's DNA in it because, like, Dune was like that revolutionary. That it's like that. It's like a keystone piece of modern science fiction. In the same way, gotcha. that, like, in the same way that like 2001: A Space Odyssey is a key piece yeah. of science fiction. It's a keystone piece of science fiction. So whoever Dude, gets he it wanted right, to re- it's going to be if they if he does it right, it'll be spectacular. Yeah, I'll tell you if he wanted to make two remake two thousand one, I would inter- I would listen to what he had to say. That'd be interesting, like, without a doubt. And I'm going to give you my hot take of the whole evening. I am not a super fan of the the eighties movie. Like there have been a couple times, even since we've lived out here, where like I've sat around kind of after a couple drinks on Saturday and tried to watch it, and like. I'm telling you, I could barely get through that opening sometime with the woman talking. It's like, it's salt. And I'm just like, oh, God, no. Yeah, it's not Maybe good. try to it, hold it's, out a little. It, it's, a, it's confusing. And I, I, I kind of for, I kind of want to figure out if I can visit the miniseries they tried making in the 90s. Um, I, I just like, I, I don't know. Like, if this is one of those projects that it, it just has to be in the right person's hands. And as much as I like David Lynch, that's not the person who should be doing Dune yeah it's even that struck me as a very weird thing even for david lynch to uh to to take on was a the dune project so i tell you like what i've seen out of these trailers i am so impressed with dune um what i've seen so far i can't wait for this whole thing to come out and is is it going to be on hbo max like later on in the year they're doing the the max it's going to be on it's going to be on hbo max the same same time all okay, the, gotcha. Okay, all, all, that's I, for, awesome. I forgot what's is it Sony that they partnered with? Ooh, I don't remember. Well, regardless, whatever 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 major distributor studio they partnered with, it's going to be like that mm-hmm. all year long. 
Okay, that's good. That's awesome. I, I for some reason I I thought they maybe pushed it back to 2022, but if we get it this year and I could watch it at home or go to the theater, um, which movie theaters are sort of open back now or opening yeah. up again. Um, I'm all for it. I, I just, I want to check this out. I'm very intrigued. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So love that choice. Love enemy. Good choice from a great director. Um, I'm going to go ahead and peg as definitely more of a, a recent favorite um, for not necessarily because of the, the story quality, let's just say, or necessarily even the acting quality. It's totally fine acting, but the movie that you're, tr- you're currently trying to finish the void um, directed by yep. Steven Katansky and Jeremy Gillespie. Um, this is an exercise in everything that I love about horror movies. Uh, dedication to practical effects, um, sort of the contained element, uh, you know, the very contained element of the story. Um, we're getting, we even, we even got some great touches of John Carpenter and H.P. Lovecraft in there. Um, I, mm-hmm. I, it, it really escaped me until I, like, I realized it, that you know they're they're kind of not stealing, paying homage to the setting of uh, of uh, Prince of Darkness. And then mm-hmm. kind of going their own direction with it. Um, but the practical effects work is fucking fabulous. Um, they're, they <clears throat> they don't shy away from like the extreme violence that is in this movie. People getting their faces cut off and people getting ripped mm-hmm. to pieces. People getting blown apart, you know, shooting each other point blank range with shotguns. Um, it's extremely violent, but they still do it in a practi- with all practical effects. Like there are no shortcuts here. There's no, um, there's no CGI squibs, uh, with some like blurring of the, you know, of the, there's this like sort of, there's this like sort of like, um, editing process. You can kind of like blur things to sort of hide the mm-hmm. rough edges. They don't do any of that. Yes. They let you see some of these really fantastic like creatures that they're making in this movie. It, this movie was made in 2016 and you could have, it feels like it was made in 1988. Um, just the way they, and I mean that in a great way, just like the, the decisions they made to make the movie are, are all rooted in old school horror movies and it's, and they still do the, they still do the great Canadian thing of maximizing the fact that they had to shoot in an abandoned school and they use that space to its absolute perfection to create this really claustrophobic atmosphere and this sense of dread. And obviously with the, the cult members, standing around outside the building, this sense that there is absolutely no way out of the situation. Yeah, dude, I'm, like I said, I got about a half an hour to go. I absolutely love it. The practical effects on this are fucking amazing. Like, it's, all the creatures, you're right, even just the, um, you know, the shaky, like, tentacles and everything, mm-hmm. and I, I, there's some really cool shots of just, like, you know, blood falling down the wall, and they, they really did a great job of, just not CGIing this fucking thing to death, man. Like if this would have been like, you know, if this would have been like an American movie and stuff, you would have seen like shotgun stuff. There have been blood that like drenches like an entire hallway mm-hmm. and everything like CGI blood splatter and stuff. It's not like that. It's grounded very much in some really cool, like realistic, um, realistic stuff. And the, um, on top of the, the creatures, I happen to love these cult figures. Those costumes of just the white yes. robes with the black upside mm-hmm. down triangle, very simple, but yet very, very haunting imagery. And it's weird that like with um something that being all white like that could really like give you the kind of willies the way that it does and stuff. I don't know if it's just like the upside down triangle, the fact that they look like those um, Imperial t- Emperor Temple guards or whatever, mm-hmm. but in white, but it's... um. <laughs> 
they're really putting together like all the right elements of the uh, movie, the, the claustrophobic element of them being trapped. And it's like a hospital and stuff. There's all this kind of um, tension within the group. Like there's somebody who's pregnant. There's like a, a, a crazy guy trying to stab some people. There's like dudes with shotguns. It's, I mean, it's there. Even the, the cop character is awesome. And yeah, and you, you're right. The, like um, one of the first like um, deaths in the movie is just like this woman, like chopping off her own face and stuff. Like literally you see like yep. her picking and cutting it with a knife. Mm-hmm. So big time fan of this. Um, I mean, I'm going to finish up finish it up probably um this evening and stuff at some point but uh big time fan i really enjoyed it so far. yeah it's I, like again it's we're not talking about i think what i when i first was like raving about this movie to you i, I said that it, like this feels like maybe the greatest version of like a college student film like mm-hmm. like this is like you know the, this is like the director's uh thesis basically and it is the yeah. best version of it is really the best version of this sort of super low budget practical effects kind of horror movie that there's there have been some other ones that have popped up between like 2010 and about this time this movie was made and they're just not anywhere near as good anywhere near as good as this thing this is this is an a plus for what exactly for what they're going for they could not make this any better Oh, man, you could definitely tell it with the lower budget, even with the camera work and stuff like that. Like, it's almost like if they had the option to, like, pick the greatest possible camera and have that suck up a lot of the budget. It's almost like they took a couple tiers down on camera wise and put more into the effects, which is um, which which I think is great. I mean, you're definitely like you're sitting down, you watch this movie and in appearance, like just like the, the view of the camera, it does look like something like clown or, you know, one of these other like kind of Netflix or Amazon horror movies where you're just like, what, the, what is this? Like when the hell did, uh, when the hell did abandoned warehouse four come out or whatever, it kind of has that low budget mm-hmm. look to it. Mm-hmm. But once you start to get into like what you, what you're there to see, like, which is the creatures and the blood and everything. I mean, it, it's great. It, it very, very much does resemble a, uh, like the John Carpenter kind of uh, horror feel. Yeah, absolutely. Just real quick, I, I just looked this up. The creature effects were crowdfunded on Indiegogo for eighty-two thousand dollars. Wow, that's See, that's pretty spectacular. That, yeah, that's fucking awesome, dude. And like, that's some of the shit that I love about this crowdfunding stuff. Is like, it just it gives. It gives people like you and me the opportunity to donate to something that could be sweet. I donated mm-hmm. to a couple like projects since we've mm-hmm. uh, since we've been out here and stuff. Oh, nice, for sure. Nice. Very nice. All right. How about uh, how about your second favorite? Okay, so my second one, this is the Canadian-based production, um, and this one is a, a more recent one, too. I just actually got done watching this show uh, about a month ago. I had seen some of it before, but I gave it a good rewatch. Um, it's a show called Man Seeking Woman. It was on FX. It's supposed to take place in Chicago, but they shoot the whole thing in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Like Everything is done up in Canada and stuff. One of the best high-concept concepts for a tv show i think i've ever seen in my life and no joke very simple format it's all about a guy trying to to find love in the big city and stuff and to get into a relationship but there's all these like situations that he encounters in his journey for true love that really where they really turn up the jets on the high concept and like the, the most definitive 
example of this on the show is uh, episode two or three. He gets a girl's number and it's all about like a text message conversation. Like, how are you supposed to have a text message conversation with somebody you've just met? Mm-hmm. And it goes from like a guy looking at his phone to all of a sudden we're in DEFCON 4. It's a Dr. Strangelove type uh, war room. And you got politicians on you telling you what to text. Like, No, don't text that. Text JK. Like all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And realistically, it is a snapshot of like what pretty much goes through my head whenever I was, you know, long before I met Jess and was trying to meet people and stuff. Um, that's exactly like what goes on in your mind. And they did this really great job of taking these emotions and turning it into like this cool, super high concept kind of idea of a dude in a presidential war room, basically deciding to, you know, nuke the world or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and it's all different stuff like that. And, um, this would be my like cheating a little bit one, but I had to kind of talk about this show because I, after rewatching it again, I was just very, very, very impressed. So entire Canadian based production, man seeking woman. It's on Hulu right now, but just check it out. Everybody. If you have not already, uh, Canadian production and Jay Baruchel is Canadian. So that it, it, it counts. He is, yes, he is Canadian too. That's right. I totally forgot about that. Yep. He is Canadian. Yep. He's, he, and, he pops up in a couple episodes of letter. Kenny, uh, playing a uh, an alt right character that's it's it's kind of a trip, but it's it it, it is very on brand for Jay Baruchel's sort of um, sort of characters that he that he embodies. Okay. Oh, that's really. I can only imagine what he is like as an alt right guy, and um, I'm like I said, I'm working my way into Letterkenny, so I'm going to keep an eye out for that as I get further into sure. the show. All right, uh, Man Sicky Woman, definitely will check that as well. Um, I, I'm just going to go ahead and just bring it up again because I want to continue to talk about the kids in the hall. Um, it, it's, again, like, just sort of, it, it gave birth to really five very strong careers, uh, which uh, out of a lot of these, like, a lot of these sort of uh, sketch comedy shows, you can't necessarily say that. Uh, you know, three, you know, five guys that have been working continuously now for over 30 years in Hollywood um, and obviously in, in Canada as well. Um, but, like, you there are some like legitimate there's some legitimately brilliant um little nuggets in in this uh in, in this show some of them are full-blown sketches some of them are just little like there's like these little asides that were in um in one episode i don't know if you remember this one 30 helens agree not off the top of my head it's literally a field full of women 30 women all named helen and they just like they just all agree on something and they give you little pieces of advice and it was like plopped in there in between all the sketches and it's just fucking funny like it's very odd it's out of nowhere and like it's this one old woman especially always has like always have like always has a uh, love advice it's random as fuck but it's fucking hysterical um there's a sketch that i still quote from that no one else fucking has, has ever seen i don't think it's called becoming a man and it's bruce mccullough getting drunk in front of his 13 year old son in front of this rock. And he's just giving him manly advice for like an hour while he drinks an entire bottle of scotch. Um, so there's, there's just like, it's just sheer fucking brilliance. And you know what? If you want to see a bunch of weird Canadian dudes cross dress, that happens a lot too. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm actually, I'm glad you brought up the cross dressing thing. Cause I think maybe that was one of like the things when I was growing up that kind of just like, I don't remember I know I've seen cross-dressing in the state before, but I don't think I'd ever seen so much of it on a sketch comedy show. Oh, God, they all, the they all, all cross-dress. 
Yeah, and like I think that that was one of the things that was just like, okay, this definitely might not be from America. Like, right, and I right. don't know why that was the thing that. But yeah, you're you're right. There's like all of those guys I think have played every possible like you know hair color, uh, um, employment, you know, like a uniform that like a woman would would dress mm-hmm. for work and stuff like that. They, they've done it all. Oh yeah, they, they absolutely. It's uh, it just it's just a, such a fabulous show. I think it might be on Amazon. I don't know if it's for free though. I don't. I don't necessarily okay. want to pay ninety nine cents an episode because uh, I'll, I'll go broke real quickly. Um, but huh. yeah, like if, if I can find it for free somewhere, I, that's that's one that I would absolutely just. That definitely feels like a good like Friday at work. About to leave. Let's let's throw on some kids in the hall in the background. Yeah, 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 definitely, dude. Yeah, that's man. I'm glad we got to bring. I'm glad we got to bring that up, and both of us had uh, something to say about that absolutely. show because it is truly a freaking landmark as far as comedy goes, oh, absolutely. and even opening the doors for like alternative comedy and stuff. It's it, it's just it's a gra- it's a groundbreaking something, sure. and, and something I very distinctly remember when I first started watching it. Um, Scott Thompson being very openly gay, like used to he used to call himself. I'm not using this word in a derogatory sense. He used to call himself the fag. And like mm-hmm. Scott Thompson was very open about it. And I don't remember that being like a staple of comedy, especially for men back in that point in time. Oh God, no, not, not a chance. And even if it, even if it was some sort of a staple, it was a staple in a very, very like in, in an audience that wasn't getting a lot of recognition at that time mm-hmm. period, like with, with, with the gay audiences and yeah. stuff. All right. How about, uh, how about your next favorite here? Okay, so the last one that I got, um, it's it's not around anymore. Um, it only lasted for a couple of years. It's called the Beaverton, and the Beaverton um, now. Okay, what's not around now is their TV show. It's still an online publication that is basically Canada's version of the Onion, and um, I happen to have a special. Con- with this because at this Toronto screenwriting conference that I went to, Jess and I were able to see like a um, like a punch up session and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and um, like basically all the writers sitting around, they were talking, going through the different sketches, kind of seeing what could be improved, and um, these guys did a really really great job. They did a lot of like awesome answering questions from the audience and stuff. Were very very personable, and the thing that they were throwing around um, is this they did like a sketch they already writ- had written and then they were pitching some ideas for like stuff you know they were working on and one of them I just know is going to be we're going to see something like it here in the states if we haven't already and their sketch idea was um there's this might have been like the Rob Ford kind of heyday I can't remember if he had he was like making the headlines for all the, the shit that he was doing around this particular time but they were pitching the sketch of like all these Canadian politicians living in a home somewhere and all the employees who at this nursing home had to like work to like, you know, kind of keep them in their bubbles. So like the Rob Ford's like a nurse would bring him crack and they would, there's another politician who's like famous for yelling at his staff. So this politician is an old guy would yell at all the staff members. And I just know that sometime in the next like five years, we're going to see like um, the Republican nursing home where it's like Trump, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, and it's on SNL. And basically like the characters are working really hard to like make sure Trump knows that he's still the president and kind of reaffirm <laughs> his beliefs. So like, I just, I have a feeling that at some point in time, we're going to see something like that. And um, the, uh, the, so this presentation that they did at the screenwriting cost 
conference was awesome. And their online publication stuff, it's similar to The Onion, but it's not as in your face. It's actually probably the most Canadian way to do The Onion, where you get these headlines. You could, you definitely could tell it's satire, but it's not. It's just not in your face. Like the mm-hmm. headlines don't read like. Like I saw this thing from the hard times.net. It's like Daft Punk is playing at my house at Daft Punk is playing at my house. And 15 other times LCD sound systems were lying fucking assholes. Like it's not like those right. kind of headlines. It'll right. be, it'll be something like, you know, uh, oil found in Toronto's town square or something like there's like little light, stupid stuff, but I enjoyed it very much. I, I think that this is great. I'm happy that these guys are continuing to, um, to exist somehow and continue to get their voices out there. And, um, I wouldn't be surprised if some of these faces popped up in, you know, Canadian television that we're going to be seeing in the future. And it was just a cool little, uh, cool little experience for sure. So that the, sounds, the no, Beaverton, that, that's, that's my third one. I, I, that sounds, yeah, that sounds actually really, really interesting. Sort of, uh, so, yeah, I, I like, I like the way you described that. I was just kind of looking it up as you were talking there. I like the way you described that sort of Canada's answer to the onion. Uh, the Beaverton makes perfect sense to call it the Beaverton. Um, yeah, no, that's really cool. You got that in, in-person experience with it too. Like that's, that's something that is, it, it's pretty invaluable to see that kind of stuff. If you're, if you are interested in screenwriting and stuff. Oh yeah, dude. And you'll be happy to know that the headliner of the conference was the, uh, the writer of, of crash. And we left long before that. So. Oh, uh, Haggis. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He was, he was the main draw for the weekend. It was, uh, he was the headliner Sunday and the, the big name on Saturday was, uh, Matt Reed, the guy who does Archer, which we saw yeah. and he was, he was yeah. fantastic too. Very well. Yeah. You picked a good time to get out of there then. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh yes, we did. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. No, love it. Love it though. Uh, my third one here, more, more recent. And one of the shows that helped kind of kick the door open for a lot of, um, for a lot of more, a lot more mainstream sci-fi shows to kind of hit the airwaves. Um, I would say this show and lost were like kind of the two catalysts at that time. And I'm of course talking about Battlestar Galactica, um, complete, completely Canadian production with a very significantly Canadian uh, cast um, uh, set in a uh, set in the twelve colonies uh, on uh, what uh, what they can or what is what's the name of the planet Caprica in search of the mythical planet of Earth and um, five was it five seasons it might have been one of those shows that got interrupted it has like a season four A four B kind of deal because of the writer strike um, okay. but. Regardless, um, one of the one of the TV shows from the early two thousands that really sort of redefined like what kind of sci what sci fi really could be, and for that matter, what the sci fi channel itself could be. Um, honestly, if it, Canada wasn't a country, I don't think the sci fi channel would exist. They'd have no place to film. But um, I think everything they do is filmed up there. But really was like really was like the first was really like their big their first really true big breakout hit that crossed over into more mainstream, uh, more mainstream entertainment and media. Like it was Battlestar Galactica was like on, um, what was that? What was that VH1 show they had? The recap show. Oh, oh like, uh, I love the eighties. I love the nineties. No, no, no. It was, it was like Pat Oswalt and the comedians and stuff would, would make fun of it. Oh God. It was like, it was like a, like a, a <sighs> like a soup style show, but like on VH1. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I them I can't remember if I had cable when that was on VH1. Right, but you, or not. but you know what I'm talking about. 
Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, like, it was one of those, like, a sci-fi show got, like, run on, like, those sort of, like, pop culture, like, recap shows. So, like, that was a huge fucking deal. Like, that never really had happened before. And, and like I said, along with, along with Lost, which is more, obviously, very, you know, we talk about it enough, but, uh, you know, a, a, a show that dealt with sci-fi and, and fantasy to some degree, um, but was definitely more aimed as a drama at a more mainstream audience, this was not trying to be a mainstream TV show. It was trying to be hard sci-fi with drama, with, you know, the trappings of drama. And it, it just, everything, for the most part, there was a, a rough part patch of season three that wasn't that interesting. But for the most part, this was like a pretty revolutionary TV show at its time. And out of out of all of this, uh, out of all the performances, uh, Trisha Helfer fucking took the show over. Um, tall, uh, tall Canadian model. It was just... She had been in stuff before. She had been an actress before, but never was like was never like bearing the load as she did as number six or Caprica six. Or she has like a, a hundred different names um, as one of the as one of the Cylons that uh, that assumed human form. Um, but she is an, a goddamn from the first time she's like our first. She's our first um, sort of extended contact on the on the in the original miniseries. And from her first minutes on screen to her last minutes on screen, she fucking takes over every scene that she's in. And this is from someone who never really acted before. She is fantastic. And she's spun a pretty great career out of out of Battlestar Galactica since then. Yeah, dude, I got to tell you, Battlestar was always one of these shows that when you talk to people that I'd be like, hey, do you, you know, are you a sci-fi fan and stuff? And like, you'd be like, yeah, I love sci-fi. And they would always ask me like, if I watched Battlestar Galactica and that made me feel like less of a sci-fi fan because it was <laughs> everybody that I knew was hardcore into it, watched this show. And like, I honestly, like when I, before I knew what the show was about, I just thought it was like a spaceship traveling in space. I had no idea that there was all this depth and Cylons and like pylons, whatever they would, whatever the, uh, the other group is called. But there was so much like, there was just basically so much to this show and it was so rich in like the characters and the story and the setting and stuff. And it was one of these kind of deals where I got like really jealous that I wasn't a part of the show, but however, there was like no way at the time for me to just catch up on it without buying mm-hmm. a bunch of DVDs and stuff. Right. No, it's, it's, it's pretty fan. Like I said, there's a, there's a slow part to it in like the third season. And then like, when we get to like the last, when we get to like the last, like, I don't know, probably 20 episodes or so, man, does it fucking kick into high gear. They're executing people that have been on the show from like, from episode one. Um, there's, there's i mean there is a like there's like a battle to end all battles and you know at the time it it, like it probably doesn't hold up that well now um but like really at the time like it looked fucking great like it really they really did a good job of sort of um being being judicious with how they were going to show like space battles and Mm. they they do a very good job like when they're going to do a space battle they fucking do a space battle like it's done very well yeah very awesome dude glad to hear that and that might be one of these things where if that ever ends up on a streaming service which it might be for all i know right now but if i if I ever get wind of that after the expanse that is going to be and believe me i am already 90 percent of the way through season one on the expanse like that would be a show that i would love to kick into high gear just to keep that sci-fi ball rolling you know? right right uh it's it's it is on peacock which i have no okay. idea if that's actually okay. free or not i don't know it always says it's free but i feel like it's free with like 35 minutes yeah. of commercials per half hour episode. Yeah. 
even if even if something like is free on there, it's like the stuff that no one wants to watch. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. oh, who wants to watch new episodes of Law and Order? You know, no, we want the <laughs> Office, but oh, you have to pay for the Office. Right. That's I know that's fucking <laughs> right. that's fucking ridiculous. Um, yeah, I was I I tried not to cheat and say the Expanse at any point in time here because I talk about it all the time. So otherwise, that would have been a slap for the Expanse because that is that is a Canadian show with Canadian directors, Canadian writers, and several Canadian actors. Yeah, b- believe me, dude. I will take this time to talk about the expanse just for two seconds and know that I, like I said, night on episode eight or episode nine of season one, it's fucking great. It's everything you said it would be, and I know it's only just heating up. Too. Oh yeah. So like I'm yeah. I'm I'm in on I'm in on this. I, yeah. Like I had all, a lot of time on the plane. I'm in on it. There you go. All right, so before we jump into our last segment here, just a little last bit of trivia. Trivia for you. Um, are you are you aware of who Mary Pickford is? I do not. The name okay. it strikes a bell, but I'm not. It's not registering right. Okay, now. this is we're, this is old school Hollywood. Uh, Mary Pickford was dubbed America's sweetheart, and she was the first person uh, cast in cement on Hollywood's Walk of Fame. Uh, Mary Pickford was born in Toronto. Um, so not really sure how she got, well, I know exactly how she got the, the moniker America's Sweetheart. That's what we did to every non-American person in Hollywood back in the <laughs> teens and twenties. We just told everyone that they were American. Um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's just what we did anyway. But Mary Pickford, um, she was dubbed America's Sweetheart first person and her husband at the time to Douglas Fairbanks. Uh, they're the first two people, uh, in, in hand, hand and footprints on Hollywood's walk of fame. Uh, she was born in Toronto in 1892. Uh, she is also one of the co-founders of United Artists, and she is one of the 36 original founders of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences. Holy shit! The fucking Canadian, like the um, some of the stuff being in the Arts and Sciences stuff, I can I can kind of see, but like being that they're like some of the first people to get on the Walk of Fame, that's really interesting stuff, dude. Because a lot, like a lot of the um, the the stars and everything like that that are in the sidewalk, like those are there are names from people going back to like the, the early part of Hollywood mm-hmm. and stuff. But to actually get the name in cement that would have gone right in front of the theater, like that, that's like a huge deal. Yeah. And like they, um, I, I know somewhere th- that like exists because the 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 handprints get changed out in front of the theater like there's modern ones and right there's some old, there's like more faint like george lucas's one is probably always going to stay there sure, but sure christopher nolan's handprints are just within the last couple of years so somewhere out there i guarantee that piece of concrete exists in this town somewhere and and that kind of shit is really cool dude like all these like little remnants and things like that of old hollywood i think are awesome uh, old hollywood is old hollywood's a fascinating place i gotta pick back up with one of my pod my uh you must remember this podcast that just covers old Hollywood from like the 1930s or 1920s to like the 1970s. Um, there's mm-hmm. just there are stories from from that 50, 60 year chunk that just they just can't happen now. Like there's no way they can happen now. Yeah, and like dude, all those old stories like, and when you see some of these like older movies that maybe are about the film industry, or even if you take Mank, which would be like the the more recent example, mm-hmm. is that it just it just looks like what this industry is all about. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like just with the studios and 
the elaborate sets and stuff. It's and like and now it's like, oh god, now you're gonna make a movie. Yeah, you're gonna get shit to Atlanta and the, the suburbs of Georgia to make your stuff. It's not like a big studio Hollywood thing like it used to be. And um, in a way, it is kind of sad. But however, it's insanely more economical. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I, I, I would be trading money for emotions on that. But that, like those kind of movies and shit, like that's like. You know, that, that's just like what this whole what what all this shit is really about. You know what I'm saying? Just mm-hmm. everything in the studio, really making making movies, making pictures and like making stuff to make those, which is which is great. We just don't have that anymore. Right. Right. All right. Let's get into our last segment here. Uh, the Temple de la Renommée. Um, we had to do something for our uh, our francophone Canadians uh, up there. Um, <laughs> legally, you have to actually put French in things in Canada. Um, it is a legal requirement. <laughs> Um, but basically, it just means the Hall of Fame. Um, Temple de la, la Renommée is the Hall of Fame, um, and they don't. There is no Canadian equivalent to Mount Rushmore. Uh, obviously, that'd be kind of strange. But um, right, <laughs> we're gonna make our own Mount Rushmore. We're gonna make our Canadian Mount Rushmore here of four of our uh, four of our like what we think are like sort of the standouts. Um, really, the standouts in a pop like pop culturally, like the big standouts for Canada. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and allow as much fudging as you want here. Um, if you got to bend some rules for this, fine, bend some rules for it. Cause I definitely bent rules for the very first one. Um, but we're going to pick an actor, a director, a film and a TV show that we're going to put on our Canadian pop culture, Mount Rushmore or our Temple de la Renommée. So, uh, Chema, why don't you, why don't you start us off? Okay, so when it comes to the the actress, I'm going to go with an actress. This okay. this is mostly I'm not going to lie. This is definitely aesthetics plays a lot into this, but I have a feeling that in time, depending on what role she takes, this this actress is going to be very big, and we'll hopefully get her mm-hmm. uh, moments on Oscar Sunday. And that is Mackenzie Davis. I am a big Mac D fan. Like I, there's something about this particular actress that I just has it going on, and it extends more than just the way she looks and stuff. I have rarely seen her used incorrectly. Um, even in Terminator Dark Fate, I don't really consider her to be all that bad. It's just kind of like a, a victim of being it's a bad movie. movie and stuff. It's a bad movie. Yeah, but she, pro- but she probably got paid a lot, and I'm not going to lie. If somebody came up to me and said, hey, do you want to be in a Terminator movie? I really I – would, mm-hmm. I, I would do it. I'm not going to lie. It's, no, it's sure. an awesome genre. So – and like her um, episode, the San Junipero episode of Black Mirror, it's – even still to this day, just seems to be one of the defining episodes of that show. Yep. Like every time I see imagery from Black Mirror, it always seems to be from that particular episode. Um, even her role in Blade Runner 2049, though small, very, very effective. And I just I'm a big fan. Believe me, um, I think she's great. So in time, um, I think she's going to rise to be one of the, one of the great Canadian actresses of all time. So I'm going to preemptively put her onto um, this Canadian version of Mount Rushmore. I, I dig it. I, I'm I'm with you that I think. I mean, she's only what 33, 34, maybe. Um, something yeah, like that. Yeah, she's young. She's younger than us. Yeah. yeah you so bet. the the literally the best is like yet to come for her. Um, had had that had that Terminator Dark Fate movie been any good, um, it probably would have been more of a more of a platform booster. But it certainly didn't hurt her at all, because she's not no, the no, issue no. in that movie at all. No, definitely not. And like even she, I think she did kind of make a good recovery. The um, she was in that Amazon movie, which like the Kristen Stewart movie, which I know people watched. It was a very popular topic of conversation that Daniel Levy's in and everything. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, she's going to be one of these people that. 
like she, I think she has still yet to like really find her groove. But whenever that groove is is found, and it's it's just going to result in some very special work. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I I agree. I think that's a really good that's a really good potential pick. I think I think it's a really good potential pick. Um, Chem, I'm going to go ahead and fudge the rules right off the bat. But he does have acting credits, um, many acting credits. Well, many of many, uh, probably like about a half dozen acting credits, but is credited with like something like over 30 appearances in TV and movies. Um, that's because his TV show was on in the background, as it was for many people in Canada and the United States. And that's Alex Trebek. Um, I don't I honestly don't know how we could go on with without we've gone this far without mentioning Alex Trebek once. But yeah, you want to talk about a legitimate Canadian luminary. It's Alex Trebek. He embodies all the things mm-hmm. that, all the things that we kind of talk about, like some of his, like the stories of his beginnings in, in Canada and coming up as like a news anchor and like some of the places that he lived, like living in people's homes, like in the basements of their homes and stuff while he worked. Like this is, he is an absolute Canadian success story. And even, you know, even as he became super successful and super present in American pop culture, still like still was like the ultimate like canadian gentleman i've never heard a bad word about alex trebek <laughs> ever heard a bad word about no, alex me, trebek me. and no you know, scandals nothing nothing and there's some like since he died in the last like several months uh, a lot of stuff has like popped up recently people with like these like these alex trebek tales uh from canada and like just sort of like how nice he was and just the, the things that he did for people when he could um you know all the all the contestants that like the guy who talked about like how he taught him english basically mm-hmm. by watching by watching mm-hmm. jeopardy it's just it's unbelievable that a game show and a guy who was at the you know before prior to the game show was perfectly happy doing like news and weather in calgary before or not was in calgary i want to say he was like in, i think he was in ottawa um was perfectly happy doing that before like ah sure i got a chance to to host this little game show and then like it's not just the game show it's his personality that turned jeopardy into this global fucking juggernaut it's all alex trebek he has to be on the Canadian Mount Rushmore. Oh, dude, that guy is an indefinite class act. And that is an icon of icons. And you're right. It, it does extend like to beyond the game show, especially like now that he has passed away and some of these stories are starting to leak out and everything. But it is just like it is just this iconoclasm that is like unfucked with. Like as far as like game show hosts go, that is like the most iconic game show is even more so than Bob Barker, you know, because like Bob Barker, the price is right is on at 11 o'clock, you know, I mean, we just know it from staying home from school or whatever, but Alex Trebek was a prime time game show and stuff like that. Something that you would see after you get off work that is in the background while you're doing whatever, eating dinner. And it's just, it's something that is so prominent and just such like a, part of this element of our culture of game shows and TV hosts and personalities and stuff. I mean, the, the guy is like a straight up class act. Yeah. You bet. Absolutely. So there you go. So we got Mackenzie Davis and Alex Trebek respectively taking up our first spots, our actor slots. So how about, how about director? Okay. So he's Canadian. I, we have to do, I have to do this, but it's James Cameron. Like Cameron is, yep. The guy is a force. He's a tour de force. I know that like his movies are, like American movies and American sci-fi and stuff. But this guy, like being that he has, you know, his birth certificate probably has a maple leaf in the bottom left-hand corner. That's notarized. I will tell you, like he has to go on this and I will tell you, man, like 
when it came to Avatar, like I, 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 I really hope that Cameron lives a long, healthy life to maybe make another movie after the Avatar movies are all released and said and done. Yeah. Because I just like, I don't want this guy's just a career of movie making that I have enjoyed so much. And these are like staples of our lives, Terminator, aliens, true lies. Like even the abyss is awesome. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, it's just these things that while these movies may not be these movies that, you know, spark all this in-depth conversation about character development and metaphors and society and Daniel day Lewis playing parts or whatever. It is just these very, very enjoyable and very like almost like special to me kind of films that, um, that I've enjoyed throughout the course of my life. And I'll tell you, Avatar was a visual juggernaut, but the story wasn't all that wasn't really all there. Blue, Blue Pocahontas. Yeah. Blue Pocahontas. Thank you. And I just, I remembered seeing it and I was just like, okay, you made this now go do something else. And that's like two to two weeks later. It's like, he's going to do avatar two and three. They're going to be coming out into the 2020s. And I'm just like, Oh man. So I, I'm sure these movies are going to make $4 billion a movie and it would be the highest growth. Oh, the Titanic too. Totally forgot about that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, um, I just want him to get through this, make another movie and then just go retire and live out your golden years, wherever you're going to live your golden years. And, um, Cameron, like your career has been a lot to me. That's why you're going on the Canadian Mount Rushmore. I, I, I could be wrong and I don't think I am whatsoever. He is, he has grossed more money than like a lot of Canadian studios have on his own. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. And like, and the cool thing about him too, and a lot of people don't really, like, this is like one of those success stories that, and I'm sure there's a lot more details than the three sentences of how I'm going to describe it. But Cameron was a truck dealer, said he could do that. He could shoot a movie and make one and then just went out and mm-hmm. fucking did it. That's well, like, that's some bullshit. Exactly. Shit. Exactly. Uh, he bet on himself and he fucking won. He had uh, two separate occasions, <laughs> right. had the highest grossing movie of all time. Um, so like, that's, you know, only... I, I can't. I could be wrong, but did Avengers Endgame is the highest grossing movie of all time currently? Did did the uh, did Avengers Infinity War did that eclipse Titanic? I th- I think if you're talking about that like two th- or nineties dollars versus two thousand fourteen, right? Whatever, just straight money, just no, no adjustment for inflation. Yeah, I, I think that Infinity War in the end. It pulled it out and stuff. I, 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 I'm under the impression that every time one of these superhero movies comes out, it's the highest grossing movie of all time until the next one comes out. At least that's what it feels like anyway. It kind of, well, that's what, that's, believe me, Disney wants you to, to have that thought in your head. Um, but right. like, so basically the only, the only people that have grossed more money, the only, the only people that have grossed more money than him on a single movie are, are the Russo brothers, but they had literally 10 years worth of time to get people interested in those two movies that outgrossed his movies. Oh yeah, exactly. Like they, they're benefiting a lot of, um, from just like, Hey, by the way, did this MCU and stuff like that. Can you imagine just like walking into a studio and be like, yeah, I'm going to, we're going to shoot a love story on the Titanic. Then a year later, it's the highest grossing movie, right? Billions of dollars from Titanic. And that's right. Like that's nineties billions of dollars. Like, I mean, it was like unheard of, like no other film even touched that. And now it seems like films make a billion dollars every other weekend. Right. Exa- well, fucking China. When, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, China. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, you got that. Right but you, you know what? And like, you know, 
like when I remember when Avatar was like up for best picture, um, like I had, like I, I had some friends that were kind of like snickering about it. I'm like, not every movie has to be some deep metaphor and exploration into the human psyche and the human condition. He makes he makes mm-hmm. spectacle and he makes spectacle better than anyone else has ever made spectacle, and that's totally oh, fine. Yeah. I want to see that definitely. Yeah, and considering Avatar is like some groundbreaking stuff as far as like as far as the spectacle and some of the technical elements, like yeah, I will. I have no problem saying that. Like yeah, I wasn't too hip to the story, but does it have every right to contend for Oscars on its on the what went into it alone? Of course. Yeah. Like I think that was one of the wasn't that one of the first like face motion capture movies? Wasn't that like the big claim to fame on that? Um, something like that. Like, I, it, basically, the three D technology that they made. I think he had to make it. Basically, like, like yeah, the camera work. Some... Like, he had to make something for for it to work the way that it worked. I think you're ringing some bells on that and like anything that he makes i'm just assuming that the only reason he's making it is because he gets to invent stuff in the process which mm-hmm. hey if you're gonna do it that's the fucking that's a reason to do it right right um yeah so i i don't disagree with that james cameron just he's he's i i wish i wish we would he could find the next he could find like the next big action project and get back into get back into more of the terminator style action movies like i need that from him again yeah, I mean, like, you, dude, some of that that sci-fi stuff, like, it's just, I, I know, like, even, like, Terminator and stuff, like, it's um, it's not as hard a sci-fi as some of the other, like, like uh, Battlestar or The Expanse, but just the science fiction concepts of this futuristic war, the machines taking over, like, it is so brilliant and has been such a, um, it's been such a prominent kind of reference and a prominent example and proud of a, a prominent part of American culture, like, that's the kind of stuff that he needs to get back to and everything. Mm. Like that's the kind of sci-fi that I want out of that guy. Absolutely. All right. So I'm going with another huge, huge name director that we've mentioned multiple times at this point, but I, I gotta, I gotta go with David Cronenberg. Um, Cronenberg again, you know, a, a genre defining um, director in, in the horror, in the realms of horror and sci-fi uh, more horror. So, so more, more so horror, um, you know, obviously as we mentioned before, he, he essentially has created the entire genre, the entire subgenre of body horror, um, such a, a signature thing um, that Cronenberg has. Cronenberg has mastered, and I don't think I don't think anyone really has even come back close to sort of. I mean, people have made more gruesome body horror movies, but like the way that Cronenberg uses, but like in, in, in like The Fly, for example, the way that Cronenberg uses the body horror as like this ongoing gruesome process that jeff goldblum has to endure um that Mm -hmm. it's it's more so like the body horror isn't just for isn't just for show with david cronenberg it is something that is an active part of the story it is something that the characters that are going through it have to endure um and and a lot of times it's sort of it's almost like sacrificial that like they have to do this um jeff jeff goldblum has to become the fly um, uh, Max Rex, uh, James Woods has to like go through his transformation in Videodrome. Like, it, it's almost it's almost like a religious sort of subtext to it, the way that he uses this gruesome this gruesomeness of 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 as it's as it gets called in Videodrome of uh, the, of the new flesh sort of taking over the body. It's mm-hmm. it, it is it's just it's it's basically the the way that we the way that we always say the cliche like oh the city's a character, the body horror. 
the horror elements are a character in David Cronenberg's movies. Oh yeah. And because of these body horror elements are so like, they're just so in detailed and everything, even like what is going on on the screen, like the actual effects is just such an in detailed thing. And it's totally encompasses the character. You're right. It is a obstacle. It's a struggle that the body horror is like, it's, it's almost like an antagonist almost mm-hmm. like in and out of itself. So yeah, this guy, like definitely he, this is like a, somebody that um, if we're talking on terms of horror could easily be on a, horror mount rushmore like not just you know like in canada but like everywhere for everybody yeah yeah oh for sure if, if there was if there was a fear take like your horror mount rushmore it's you have you have cronenberg and john carpenter there are probably the two biggest heads on that damn mountain yeah exactly yeah for sure yeah god damn like i keep forgetting how like rich his um his videography is it's, like it's, cronenberg and yeah it's it's deep um and he's and i love when he pops up in things as an actor uh, when he's just like randomly in stuff, he was just re- he was just very recently in the last season of Star Trek Discovery as a character, and like, huh. God, God damn, is he weird, man? Like, he just looks weird. <laughs> like, he, yeah, he looks like what you think a horror director would look like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, isn't it, dude? It's nuts. Both him and Carpenter. That's exactly right. These people look like horror movie directors. That's yep. right. Yeah, there's, it's not that like pretty boy bullshit and stuff. It's like these are like weird quirky looking dudes who like walk the walk and talk the talk and stuff yeah all right so uh how about your film your canadian film on and kind of and our, and our pop culture at mount rushmore okay well you just referenced it actually and i'm going with the fly nice. like this right here like this would be the earliest example of canadian entertainment but like to me it was just like a regular horror movie like i didn't find out that this was a canadian movie till like way after the fact and stuff but the thing that puts it up on mount rushmore on top of it being like a really good movie. It's a contribution to body horror, all that stuff. This is just such a goddamn powerhouse of the pop culture reference. Like mm-hmm. I, it's still referenced even to this day. Like I wouldn't be surprised if you type the fly on Twitter right now. And there immediately are like 10, what appear to be new jokes until you find out that it's just the same joke told by a different guy. But, um, th- these are just like, it, the movie is just like constantly referenced. It's, um, it's just like such a like a staple of even Goldblum's career and everything. So the importance of this movie and its in its you know uh, contributions to body horror, the uh, you know kind of this pinnacle of Cronenberg's career and you know just almost like a uh, not necessarily like the the big breakthrough movie, but like it's you know definitely a popular movie of his. And the way that it is continuously referenced and how this Canadian movie is as much of American horror movie culture as Halloween. I think that, that, that the fly is one that should go up on this mountain. I, I am whole, I, I agree wholeheartedly with you there. It's, it, it is, it, it took, it took a 1950s movie that was um, certainly kind of scary in its time, but kind of kooky and very much uh, those, those 50s horror movies, they didn't have like deep messages necessarily. And the fly went ahead and gave it more messaging and gave it more layers and gave it more nuance all, all while Jeff Goldblum is fucking turning into this disgusting fucking creature that spits vomit, you know, that spits acidic vomit at people. Yeah. And dude, speaking of Goldblum, um, it's obviously has not gone on due to the pandemic, but we found out that he holds a, like every other week or once a month piano show at a bar in LA where it's Jeff Goldblum playing the piano, singing fucking songs. And as soon as this whole thing is over with, this is like a must do. Like it's this and Fred Durst jazz night. Like these are two things that have to be done. 
that that sounds first off that sounds like something Jeff Goldblum would do, and that sounds like something <laughs> yep. I'd be very interested in going to do. Yeah, dude. Like I, we found out about this like while the pa- I think like right before the pandemic started going on, and like it's, since it's only like a once a month or something like that show, like all tickets were like sold out. You know, you have to get these things like you know a couple shows in advance. Sure. Yeah. And. And I'm just like, how the hell did we miss this? Like, how have I been here this entire goddamn time and not even heard about this? And um, one, now that I now that I know that this is like moving up to like in like the list of top 10 things that we need to do in L.A. once we're able to do it. Oh, no, for sure. You have to now. Now that you've now that you've mentioned on the podcast, you 100 percent have to. <laughs> Oh yeah, there's going to be an episode where I take like the five good minutes section and expand it to 25 good minutes, where I just literally describe the show minute for minute in detail. <laughs> there was one t- he hit the F key and then he looked to his left and he kind of raised an eyebrow, and then the next second it was his other eyebrow and he looked to his right. So, like that's kind of what I would want to do in the show. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, no, I love it though. I love it. Um, I am I am also going with a, a David Cronenberg movie here, uh, but not The Fly. I am going with uh, I'm going with Videodrome, and this one has always always stood out to me. Um, it's the body horror is amongst the most random and visceral of, of all of his movies. Maybe not as much as the Brood. The Brood is I'm telling you it's on another level, um, <clears throat> but sort of you know the the idea behind Videodrome is that is the way that the the amount of the amount of pop culture and entertainment and television that we're that we're consuming is basically transforming us. And in the case mm-hmm. of James Woods's character, who runs a TV station that traffics in very like kind of think of like the old school, um, you know, those like when you were a kid, you had those old school staticky channels that had much more adult stuff yeah. on it. Um, yep. But James Woods' character runs one of those kind of stations, and he's always looking for more extreme stuff to put on the airwaves and this mm-hmm. the video drum is definitely a story is definitely a movie about how that search for more extreme content is obviously it's changing us uh we by the way we know that television con- consumption screen screen time now it's more about just television it's about our laptops and ipads and phones and things that screen time literally changes our brains and changes our behaviors right. and cronenberg was onto that in 1983 that the amount of TV and the amount of information that we're consuming over the airwaves um, will irreparably damage us and change us. And in the case of Videodrome, he shows he puts uh, he puts James Woods' character through the ringer physically to show to show the ways that that TV is changing him into this gruesome creature um, that is that is in fact part I guess part uh, part television. Not literally like a TV, but like, I mean, literally a part of what the airwaves are is what James Woods is becoming. And it has to be really good to like watch that movie and just be like, man, what this guy turned into 20 years down the road. Oh, my God. I know. I know seriously. I mean, it's funny because like now that we know it's not like what he turned into, what he always was. What it he just, always was. Yeah. We just get like a bunch brighter because he's on his Twitter every day calling calling libs assholes and like everyone, you know, Hillary Clinton should die. Um, but it, it, like, yeah, it, it's just, this was like before, probably before the public at large knew about uh, James Woods and like, mm-hmm. but like he's playing a character that I imagine that James Woods is in real life. 
And I think okay. going look looking at all of his thinking about all of his roles that kind of stand out at least to me, it's just like James Woods like this guy's an asshole. I could play him, no problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, dude, like that is his signature thing. And like I'm telling you, like prior to the whole like him trying to own the libs and stuff, this was actually a guy that like I kind of enjoyed and stuff. Like yeah, I, I, I enjoyed the shtick. Casino. I enjoyed the shtick. Yeah, like even like that stupid show on CBS he had called Shark. Like yep. I was just like, okay, this is a character perfectly crafted for James Woods. And like, and now it's like, honest to God, like, I mean, I am definitely interested. I don't think I've seen Videodrome. And if I have, it's been a long time. So like, I'm kind of interested to see this because like, this is like, I guess that's how I want to remember James Woods. Not like, not like the James Woods that we see now. Yeah, ex- exactly. There's, yeah, actually, I would I would recommend it one because it's just a very good movie. Um, I wouldn't say this; it's probably not David Cronenberg's best movie. I just think it's a it's one of his most uh, it's one of his most heavily messaged movies. Like, there's a lot he's he's trying to say a lot in this movie, um, but it's it's a good James Woods performance. It's a surprisingly good Debbie Harry performance, um, and you also get to bonus get to see Debbie Harry naked. That's always great. She was really hot oh, back in the eighties. Bloody. Yep. Blondie did. Yep. Oh man. Okay. Yeah. Now I have even. I love eighties. <laughs> she was. I, she I, was. It's a whole thing. She was quite hot. Um. That's for sure. But it, even she like turns in a good performance. It's just. It's a good. It's just a very. It's a very solid all around Cronenberg movie with a lot more messaging. A lot more, but more messaging that he puts into a lot of his other films. Gotcha. Yeah, that's going to be a must uh, a must watch now. You just up the ante a little bit on that. I'm not going to lie. All right, there you go. Like, if, there was, if there was ever a person to uh, say there's nudity and all of a sudden really raise the ears, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. You did it right there, buddy. <laughs> nice. All right, how about, how about your TV show? Okay, this one we talked. I'm, I'm throwing Shit's Creek up on this. Like, this was such a unexpected enjoyable thing it's in its own way it's sparking this really cool kind of pop culture phenomenon of people not only people watching the show but actually people knowing it and liking it and i have a feeling that daniel levy is going to be a big time star coming up here soon so it's mm-hmm. cool to see this i don't even know if he's ever acted in anything else to be honest with you so like it's um it is just really cool like i think to get on the ground floor of something i have a feeling that in 15 years whenever netflix is doing the like the Shits creek reunion episode or whatever like this show is going to be not like it's not going to be hailed as like a cheer show but this is going to be one of these shows that like people talk about for a long time it's going to end up on like lists of the best comedy shows to check out this is going to be something that's um the longer it goes on, it's just going to age better. Mm-hmm. It's going to be all of a sudden you'll be at the bar and all of a sudden people will be doing Shit's Creek quotes and stuff. It could become the I'm Rick James bitch of 2024, you know, whenever we're allowed to go back in bars and shout Rick uh, Chappelle show quotes back at each other. <laughs> so like, so th- there is just, uh, you could kind of tell there, there's something really special about this. And I think over time, we're going to find out exactly and really, really specifically like why this show is so special and why this show turned out to be as good as it did. I no no arguments here. Um, you are, you're absolutely right. It's, 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 a, it, it is one of those shows I think is going to get uh, not better with age. It's going to be as, as it gets, you're right. As it gets reexamined periodically, 
there's just going to be new stuff and new messages for the people who are just being introduced to it for the first time. Um, like mm-hmm. just thinking about how like people, people are getting introduced for the first time. Probably there's a lot of young people probably getting introduced for the first time to Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy, people that I've been watching since I was a kid. Um, right. You know, like, so there's like a re, you know, there's like a reintroduction for that kind of stuff. This is, this is also like, <clears throat> this is maybe, I think this is like a, a, a I think there's going to be a lot more sitcoms that follow this sort of formula. This is a non-cynical sitcom where like really like at its center is like being nice to people and like being kind to the people around you where it's yeah. not about it's not about like it's not about like the unappreciated wife and the and the dumb husband. It's not about um I'm trying to think some other some other sitcom tropes that come to mind. That one's obviously like the biggest one. Oh. But the the rebellious teenager, yeah. you know, the um the developing young woman who's got all the boyfriends that the father right. wants to bury and stuff. Like yeah, I get the the neighbor coming in all the time, like just walking in the house, grabbing food and leaving, that kind of shit. Yeah. Right. It's 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 a show with it's a show without without too much cynicism. And it's it's a lot of and it's just like a lot of positivity. And I think we're gonna see a lot more shows kind of spin themselves as like not of trying not to not to dive in like making their comedy out of old conflict, like old relationship conflicts, but making their comedy out of how Shit's Creek made comedy. Yeah. And dude, like in the, in the, the last like year or so with everything being as crazy as it is, like people just need a fucking shot of optimism. You know what I'm saying? And For not sure. just like good, not just good things happening to people, but like tonal stuff. Some of the things we were talking about in the beginning, just, there will always be a room for cynicism. There will always be a place for, you know, comedy through cynicism. There will always be a room for like not nice television programming. But this is something that I think people might end up being hungry for. It's like just, you know, we don't we, you could watch 40 million dark conflicting things with teenagers doing drugs and people banging everybody every which second there's going to be a new found audience for, or a newly developing audience for this kind of like positive and optimism driven kind of show and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I'm, I'm kind of interested to see where this goes. I, I'm sure there will be some that try to do what Shits Creek did and failed. And there will probably be some that try and are very, very successful. So like whatever this show is introduced the next, like, you know, five to 10 years of similar program, I think, could basically, you know, spark a whole new, not necessarily like genre in the sense that it's, you know, it's obviously a family comedy. We've seen that before, but I think maybe a new kind of style or a new way of delivering comedy and yeah. humor to audiences. Yeah, I, I agree. Completely agree. Uh, since you since you brought it up, I just looked it up real quick because um, Levy mostly TV host. Uh, he was like he was a host on MTV Canada, but okay. But in terms of like his acting, of course he was in Degrassi for a few episodes because I think every child actor is in Degrassi. Uh, every Canadian yeah. child actor has to go to Degrassi um, at least mm-hmm. f- for at least one episode. And then it's just like a smattering of just a smattering of like um, appearances in short films, uh, some like little cameos uh, before Shit's Creek. Like there's really nothing, really nothing that big. Yeah. So, I mean, this guy is going to, and he's like, he's in his thirties. I mean, he's still a young dude. So this guy, he's, it's got a bright future ahead of him. Like I, I don't, he's one of these people too, that he's just so enjoyable that 
I think whatever he gets into is going to be worth it. Even if for some reason, if Daniel Levy just woke up tomorrow and decided that he was going to host game shows for the rest of his life, those are going to be entertaining game shows to watch. You oh, know, yeah. There's just something about that dude that just sparks like this natural kind of like pay attention to this guy. He's going to entertain you type thing. Yeah, I that, absolutely. I could I can almost see him 20 years from now uh, when he, as he's approaching 60, 20 years from now hosting The Price is Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And believe me, like they'll go through Drew Carey, um, one other guy and Daniel Levy in between time. That is a great um, that's a great place for him to find himself in uh, in 30 years. Uh, love it, though. I, hard to disagree with Shit's Creek. And I am also going with uh, I'm going with Letter Kenny here for my Mount Rushmore show. Um, could have I mean, honestly, we could have put kids in the hall on here. Um Either of us. Uh, the only reason why we didn't, the only reason why I didn't, is because I do. I had a feeling we we're going to talk about it at length anyway. Um, and yeah. I, I almost feel like it's. I, I almost feel like. It. I think it's. It's much more. It means much more to me as like my like first experience with like true Canadian television. Um, like the nostalgia factor mm-hmm. is really high because I'm sure there's plenty of people in Canada who preferred SATV over over this. Um, yeah, who prefer, yeah. you know, whatever, take your pick, prefer whatever over, over kids in the hall. But like, for me, that's like a huge nostalgia pick. I, I do think though that, um, in the same way that Schitt's Creek is telling a very interesting story about small town Canada, Letterkenny is telling a very interesting story about the Canadians and about really about like I, I, the Canadians themselves, is not the right way to put it, but sort of, um, honing in on non-traditional non-traditional heroes, non-traditional villains, if you will, um, probably antagonist protagonist is a better way to look at it than, than hero and villain. Um, just sort of like really giving a lot of people that would never get run, even on Canadian TV shows, get a lot of run on this TV show. Um, you get, you get the, mm-hmm. the self-proclaimed Hicks are, are your main characters, guys that on, on any other TV show would be kind of secondary characters that are just big, dumb idiots. And in their own way, they are big, dumb idiots but not in like a very stereotypical sense. The the drugged out the drugged out uh, tech uh, techno heads the skids, you know they're 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 doing cocaine and they're doing amphetamines and stuff. But like when they can, they manage to help out the town in some way, shape, or form, even sometimes unintentionally. Um, they're 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 very mm-hmm. interesting comic relief, um, especially in the later seasons. They're very interesting comic relief. Um, you have you have like when they do do a drop in with like a sort of. Uh, a guest character it's it's played the right way um there's there's two episodes with the um with these amish characters and one of them is played by sarah wayne callies of walking dead and uh prison break and a bunch of other shows canadian actress obviously yeah. um yeah she's yep. she's uh laurie from walking dead um yeah yeah she comes and you wouldn't recognize her either um it's, it's pretty funny but like there she comes in in an episode uh playing uh i think they're the, i think they're the dicks um is the name of their family and it literally uh, there's two episodes that she's in are two half hour dick jokes it just continuous dick jokes um it's unbelievable <laughs> unbelievable um so like when they do bring in when they do bring in some uh some canadian celebrities uh if you will into into letter kenny it just it fits in with what they're doing um it, it's not really there's only one that i can think of that's distracting and that's only because, like, it's it's the it's Canadian pickers, it's not American pickers. It's the Canadian pickers pop up at the end of an episode. 
Um, and it's like a oh, very, okay. it's a very purposeful. Oh, it's very. It's not like they're trying to hide the cameo necessarily. They are introduced as the Canadian pickers. But anyway, they do. They just do such a good job of highlighting these very, these very eccentric characters. But they bury the but they bury the eccentric characters within like the normal fabric of Canadian life, and it just creates this very weird, very surreal, but always fun and always entertaining show that like I think. I think that is going to really springboard a few of these people onto uh, onto bigger and better things. Yeah, I'll tell you, with the way that this show is developing an audience, there's going to be a couple people from this show that break out, and like it's it's a it's a popular enough show to where I would say maybe not every day, but like every other day, there is some kind of Letterkenny joke that pops up or a Letterkenny gif or something that pops up in my social media mm-hmm. feeds. So people are definitely enjoying it. And like you're a lot of like what you're saying with these characters and everything and these eccentricities seems to be some of the main like selling points and some of the main like, you know, kind of um, like a boosting into like the social media sphere and stuff. So there's like I couldn't tell you for the life of me which specifically, but there's definitely like from what I have seen some comedic talent that can extend long beyond the um, the show that's that's on right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, um, there's there's good there's a lot of good comedic talent on it. I know I've mentioned the guy who plays the hockey coach before. That guy is hysterical. I I could just watch him. He he has a scene. He has a bunch of scenes in in one in the most recent season in an episode. Where he and the uh, he and the hockey players join a beer league hockey team, and he talks about <laughs> his, he talks about his dead wife, and like these four separate scenes, and how he like he has sex with her out like out in the wilderness each time, mm-hmm. and it is it is horrifying and hysterical all at the same time, and I can't imagine that any other any other comedian other than Mark Forward could deliver this sort of monologue the way he delivers it. Like it's it's unbelievable. Nice. Very nice. Yeah, I'll, I'll look out for that um, whenever whenever I get to it as I pr- get into the show a little bit farther. Yeah, no, it's 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 a it's a fabulous show. And I think, um, like I said, it's it's got it's got some serious potential for some of the actors and actresses in it. And uh, and if you are just looking for, I don't know, something to look at, there are some of the most attractive Canadians you will ever see uh, pop up in the show as well. Oh, I've seen some. Yes, I have seen some photographs, and you are a hundred percent right on that. Definitely, just just throwing that out there. There, there's, there's apparently nary a a, a normal looking woman uh, that populates Letterkenny, uh, Letterkenny, Ontario. So, just throwing that out there too. <laughs> yeah, I know. Small town Canada, and the women are just through the roof on attractiveness. It's amazing. Even, yeah, we don't get that here. No, even even when uh, even when they hit uh, when they go to the reservation. Uh, the, the, uh, the first nations, I forget which, are they the Mohawks? I think they're Mohawks. Um, they, uh, yeah, there's not a bad looking woman on that reservation. Not a single one. (laughs) Amazing. Gotta love that stuff. (laughs) All right right there. So there you have it. I think we are, I think we are done with our, uh, our brief, or, well, it's not brief. It's like, it'd be a two and a half hour episode, but, uh, comparative to the wealth of, of Canadian entertainment out there, our brief episode on it. Um, any, mm-hmm. any final uh, thoughts here as we part? 
Yeah, I, there's actually one thing I wanted to mention. I forgot to bring this up earlier. Sure. So it involves Kid, Kim's Convenience. Okay. And um, th- this show actually did something that I thought was really fucking baller. Um, they had a contest, and this was when season one was coming out. I think that they might have done this while they were like getting ready to shoot and make season one. So they had this contest up there where um, they were basically like, hey, writers, like you think you can write for a show? Send us what you got. And the showrunners picked a group of like a writer's room of people from this contest and everything. And they brought them in to write an episode of the show. And the the exact episode escapes me. It is from season one though. And um, when I was up at the screenwriting conference, so this is the, like, this is just like the something that would happen to me and only me in the world. So one of the writers that they picked for this show was in a band that I really like from Canada called the rural Alberta advantage. And it's like a folk punk band. It's actually pretty good stuff. And she is the keyboard player in the band. So I've seen this band twice prior to the screenwriting conference. So they're announcing all the names of the writers and they're like, Oh, and here is Amy Coles from Toronto, Ontario. And like, you know, there's like 20 people in the room and it's not like where people are walking out to like this roaring applause. So being that I knew who this was in a silent room, I just say, holy shit. And like, this looks really creepy. It looks like, because I mean, she's very attractive. So it looks really creepy as like me as this guy in the audience, like this person walks out on stage. But in all reality, I knew who she actually was. And for the longest time, I was like thinking to myself, I'm like, I wonder if this, I wonder if she heard me like say that, you know what I'm saying? And like, and it would just be, if I ever had the opportunity to meet this person, I would be like, yeah, I only like mention that because I know who you are. You're very attractive and everything, but like, I know as a person who you are, like I respect you for your actual work, not just because you are the only attractive woman on the stage. And, um, <laughs> right. Yeah. So like, it was like one of those only like could happen to Adam Chemielewski moments. And like, you're like everybody in the room, like, like eyes, like turning and facing me and stuff when this happens. And it was quite embarrassing and something that, um, something that I kind of get a chuckle out of as, uh, as the years go on. And what's actually interesting is that she tried to do this kind of like filmmaking career and then two years later she wound up back in the band so now she's so she's not doing the, the the filming stuff right now she's back in the band and touring with them whenever they go back on tour and um out of all the out of all the weird things in the world that i could possibly pick out of a room it was the key, the keyboard player for the rural alberta advantage winning a contest to be a writer on a show at a screenwriting conference that i was somehow attending i don't know how this shit <laughs> happens to me <laughs> Oh, that's uh, yeah. I don't. That's that's a that is that is definitely a very uh, Chemelewski story. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. They, as most of my stories are, very very weird and go nowhere with an often not as humorous twist as the build up. So that's pretty much how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I don't have anything else other than uh, this was fun. This was a, a fun little episode. Yeah, I got to tell you, for not um, knowing as much about it as in the beginning when I was doing the initial outline, I, I was definitely surprised how much we were able to get out of this conversation. Like, this is there's a lot of really good stuff in there for sure. Yeah, you want to lead us out of here? You bet, bro. Everybody out there, thank you very much for tuning into this northerly inspired installment of the Occasionalist Podcast. You can go find us on Podbean, Spotify. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram. This is Adam Chemelewski with Matthew Pagel, as always, wishing you guys the best. Thank you. See you later, hosers. <laughs>